Thrash It Out this week is supported by our favourite returning sponsor, you, because we are a 100% independent and unbiased show with no advertisers or sponsors. Instead, we are funded entirely by our listeners who support the show through our Patreon campaign, which helps us to keep thrashing. So go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to make your pledge today. This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are listening to the 2014 Exodus Thrashter piece, Blood In, Blood Out. Thrashter piece, very good. <laughs> An album that lives up to the name of this show, for sure. It, it does, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, I mean, apart from, um, well, you know, I was going to say, apart from the albums we covered for the big four, but even then... Like, you know, this is probably the most actual outright thrash metal album that we've covered on the whole I, show. I, I think it is, because the choices that we made for those big four albums were not the traditional ones that we right. would probably not the talk obvious about. archetypal albums that everybody already knows to death. Um, yeah, this is, it's really, that was the one thing that really struck me about this, is how very very thrash it was <laughs> which, which is, is very good. apropos for exodus and we'll talk about that when we talk about the band yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. but um but yeah my my hope in choosing this album is that this for some of our listeners might be n- maybe not one of the bands that they think of when they think of thrash or that when they think of you know the the big four and the other bands that were around that time um i think that we hear a lot about testament we hear you know overkill we hear death angel um, but I feel like Exodus is a very underappreciated band, especially for the role that they played in the in the thrash scene and really the development of thrash in America. So I'm really excited to get into this one. Yeah, well, and I think, I mean, I am very much, you know, you're much more knowledgeable about Exodus than me. I know the bare minimum about them. But what I do know is, much like Testament, I think one of the problems they've had is... Uh, the sheer number of lineup changes, like real problems with consistency and lineup changes throughout their career, much more so. And, you know, God knows Megadeth have had their problems with that as well. And even Slayer to an extent, you know, with the revolving drum kit chair. But most of um, the big four have been relatively more consistent, it seems, than Exodus or Testament. Yeah, and I think when when that position that changes is the singer, that really dramatically changes sort of people's perception of that band and and so well look at anthrax yeah exactly um but they and the thing is a lot of people don't remember that there was a guy before joey belladonna right so in most people's minds it's it's right, joey belladonna right. and it's sean bush um but yes oh, and the it, same thing here with exodus sure from what i read yeah there was uh what was his name paul bailoff paul bailoff was the original singer and then you had uh Sousa, and then you had rob dukes and now Sousa is back in the band and and you're absolutely right i mean when you look at the wikipedia page for exodus i mean it looks like a rainbow when they do that little color chart of right. who's been <laughs> yeah. in the band and what years and stuff like that and people have come and gone you know uh 
so yeah, a very, very interesting history. But they kind of were a victim of circumstance, I think, too, in terms of the perception of who started the genre and right, right. Um, sort of who got their records out first and stuff like that. And and it's kind of a fascinating story. But what I, why I chose this album is because here we are in, it was 2014 when this album came out. And if there was any doubt, you know, about their place in the landscape of thrash, I think this album is a great sort of exhibit <laughs> to, uh, right. to put forward. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, let's not let anybody forget who were, uh, some of the godfathers of this genre so yeah yeah and it really shows yeah um all right so before we get uh too deep into the band let's do a bit of follow-up uh we have two new patrons since our last episode that is uh pavel binchik and dan davidson so thank you both for uh supporting us by becoming patrons uh reminded to everyone else patreon.com slash thrash it out if you want to help support the show thank you very much um and i just want to quickly say uh the last show uh, not the uh, last video show that we did, but the last audio podcast that we did. Um, you mentioned Duran Duran. Yes. Uh, and you mentioned a song particularly called Come Undone, yes. which you said, you know, sort of reminded you in some ways of type of negative. And I said I wasn't familiar with it. Turns out I was, but I didn't know the title because I looked it up on YouTube. And, I, and as soon as it started playing, I was like, oh, this one. Um, I'm still not sure that I would compare it to typo negative but you know fair enough i can i can see where you're getting at with it well we had a huge response to which i'm sure was very heartwarming to you to that to that particular episode the typo negative episode we did, I mean, yeah just looking at the facebook page like a people were very excited that we that you chose that album first of all and they also thought that we did it justice and there was a lot of people who sort of either had given that band one look and never looked again or you know, we're just so happy that this album was finally brought up. And I'll just read a few of the comments because there was like 20, almost 30 of them on there. But um, let's see what we had here. Uh, Darren Gleaton said, holy hell, what a beast of an episode. I dig this album, though I do think it's so front-loaded with gold that the back half suffers for it. He said, Brian hit the nail right on the head when he mentioned Duran Duran. I thought the same thing and the songs mentioned are pretty good examples. I'd even throw the chauffeur into the mix uh, maybe more in regard to lyrical content. And I will say that if you are listening to this and you have not heard the chauffeur, chauffeur from Duran Duran, go to YouTube right now and check it out because what a great song. Um, Can I just interrupt? And yeah. like all, the, all this Duran Duran trolling. Uh, <laughs> right? what, what probably nobody out there knows, and I'm pretty sure you don't know either, is that Duran Duran are from like my hometown. They I did are, not know that. Yeah. Uh, like John Taylor... The bassist went to the same high school as me. Uh, wow. He was, you know, he was above me in years. But yeah, we, like he was at the same high school. My um, tu- form tutor, who was also the head of the art department and my art tutor for a couple of years, taught him like art classes. Um, yeah, you know, John Taylor is one of the most famous people to come from <laughs> that town. So I like Duran Duran well enough, but I have a kind of uh and a sort of instinctive reflex action to uh you know like i say i do like them don't get me wrong uh you know good band good pop band uh help kick off the new romantic movements and everything you know very big when i was a kid but kind of oversaturated because you know he's like i say they're one of the most famous things to come out of that part of the country and so it's kind of hard not to be reminded of that all the time <laughs> well and i can hear 
you cringe. I can feel you cringe on the other side every time someone's like, hey, they're just like Duran Duran. And you're like, no, no, they're not. Uh, Let me be clear. They are not. Uh, But I just like that to me is is, uh, obviously we pull from our own internal record catalog every time that we hear an oh, album of course, we're like yeah, oh yeah, that reminds yeah. me of that but it, it, yeah. it uh that definitely sort of rung true to me uh, a couple more comments here kenneth white said another great show i really enjoyed this one with the highlight being it's in bullshit time he said i was walking down the street <laughs> and got some very odd looks for laughing out loud he said uh as for typo i really dislike this album and i mean all of it from the over-the-top cheese lyrics the monotone and the really flat production that makes for me the album dissolve into a sonic smear of dullness now i read that because our friend torin uh who this is one of her favorite albums of all time right she put an epic post up uh not necessarily arguing you know darren's feedback about that but or kenneth's uh feedback about that who did i just say that was oh it was kenneth's um but she had some great things to say about this album, and I just want to read one quote. Uh, so you should go to the Facebook page and read her whole post on it because it's really, really great. Uh, she said, the music is deceptively complex. It's one of the best driving albums I know of because when I have time to really get into it, uh, even now two decades later, there are still brilliant little details in the production that I haven't noticed before. I'm not sure if they're added consciously as the songwriting and buildup seem instinctive and natural rather than calculated and overproduced. But it doesn't matter. The layering of the guitar and keyboard is great. The bass line is 96 and the vocals are done with so much fuck me confidence. You just kind of buy it. And I think that (laughs) is such a perfect like summary of that album. Uh, And she mentions, you know, a great driving album, which I I listen to so many albums that way that 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 struck a chord with me. Right. Well, and I mentioned on the episode that, you know, I listened to that album a lot when I was uh, driving as well, when after it first came out. But what I love about um, Torrance Post there is that it kind of sums up everything that people both like and hate. Absolutely. About Type and Like, those are exactly the reasons that I love it, and they're also exactly the reasons why lots of people hate it. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Which so, I just think is is great. I think that's that's the sign of a band that is unapologetic. You know, like when when it's exactly the same reasons why people either love or hate them. That right. shows a band that really is sort of doing its own thing and you know very confident in what it's doing. Interesting thing about them, though, because as as you and I had talked about, I don't know if I posted it on the page or not, but I had gone back and listened to some of their other stuff, and it did not hit me in the same way is that they're definitely one of those bands where you could get one album in sort of a vacuum and be like, that's my favorite band of all time. And then listen to one of their other albums and be like, Whoa, who the heck are these guys? Right. Because I the, feel like they're, they're very different. They are their later albums less. So like the last couple of albums they did were more like each other and certainly more like uh bloody kisses, or at least the second edition of bloody kisses than than October Rust, certainly. But yeah, but every album does sound different. The production on every album is different. Um, yeah, you know, they are one of those, as you say, one of those bands where you, it's quite legitimate to sort of love one album and really not like another one. And right. that's that's kind of okay because you're bound to meet people for whom the opposite is true. Well, I mean, we could have the same conversation about Metallica, right? You know, a oh, band yeah. that yeah, yeah. 
you know, in, in some people's eyes are two completely different bands. And so, um, or we just talked about Anthrax with Bush and, and Belladonna. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but here's one for the win column, Anthony, and you're going to have to bear through another Duran Duran comment to get to the good <laughs> stuff here. But, Surely, uh, <laughs> but Dan Summers said, so as far as I know, I'd never listened to Typo Negative before I knew of them. Uh, before I knew of them and what they were about, but I'd never gotten around to them. At first listen, I had to check that it wasn't 1986 instead of 1996. They sounded like Duran Duran. Second thought was that they sound a lot like The Birthday Massacre with a completely different vocalist. Now, The Birthday Massacre are a band I was introduced to because my girlfriend at the time said my music sounded like them. Now, obviously, The Birthday Massacre are very heavily influenced by Typo Negative, but wow. He said, now I think Typo Negative might be on their way to being one of my favorite bands. They have the perfect mix of goth, doom, keyboards, and that awesome bass and vocals. That is awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that again, goes right to the mission statement of this podcast. If we can get every episode a few people walking away saying, didn't really know this band or this album or hadn't listened to it in a long time, and I really, really dig it coming out of the discussion, to me, that's that's always a win. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had uh, an email as well, actually, not on the Facebook group, but we had an email from a listener, Goddess Kadash, who um, is uh, somebody that you know I'm aware of on Twitter. Uh, I didn't realise that she listened to the show. And uh, one of the things she said, uh, she's British, and one of the things she said was that uh, she was at the Astoria show that Type of Negative played with My Dying Bride that I mentioned that I missed. Um, I think that's the show she's referring to anyway. She says, when they played the London Astoria, I grabbed a ticket fast on the day, though I was very sick with the chest infection. However, I wasn't going to let that stop me. I dragged my sorry ass down there, spent most of the gig sat on the stairs with my friend, feeling miserable and sorry for myself, missed most of the support and stumbled in for typo. Um, I had to take a break after a few songs, but we went back in for our favourites. And she says, I hadn't listened to them for a while until you announced that this was coming up and it's been a wonderful nostalgia trip hearing this stuff again. I'd never stopped being a fan. I still own and wear a couple of their shirts. Um, and if Pete hadn't suddenly passed away, I'd probably still go and see them live, but properly this time. So thank you for that. Yeah, that was a great one. And, uh, you know, it made me think of shows that I dragged myself to where I was feeling less than 100%. And the show that I talk about all the time, which was the 1991 Clash of the Titans tour, where I saw Megadeth, Anthrax, Slayer, and uh, Alice in Chains, I had a killer migraine going into that show. And I just, you know, took however many aspirin I could fit in the palm of my hand and, you know, got down there because I was not going to miss that show. It was at Lake Compounds in uh, Connecticut. And it was one of those things that I would I would have been so upset with myself if I didn't go to that show because I've right. never had an opportunity to see those bands together like that ever again. You know what I mean? And you never will. Right. Yeah. Uh, um so the last one I'll read here just from uh, the Facebook page too. Uh, Andrew Salmon said, this was an absolute revelation to me. I loved it. I was aware of typo negative around the time of Bloody Kisses, but had always just written them off as goth rock, which I didn't have a problem with, but didn't really connect to, uh, or have the disposable income to particularly experiment outside of a bit of uh, sisters. But the mix of genuine feeling and self-aware humor really tickles my wicket on this one. And the lush... Uh, reverby production hides some of the great riffing throughout, making the whole thing a lot more metal than I was expecting. Looking forward to jumping into the rest of their discography. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, as we've said all along, if we can do that with uh, listeners and expose them to new stuff and get them to dig further into a band's discography, then you know that's what it's all about, isn't it? Right, absolutely. And and so you know, I think overall, 
that this was one of those sort of love it or hate it types of bands. But I feel like overall, the response to that episode was, I really kind of dismissed these guys out of hand before. And now that I've listened to this album a little bit more, I kind of dig it. And so I think Which- I think you came out in the win column for that one. Well, and funnily enough, I was just thinking that's kind of what happened with Twisted Sister as well. Mm-hmm. Myself included, you know, as we said on the show, like I had dismissed them out of hand as just another hair metal band. And, you know, I couldn't have been more wrong. And a lot of listeners had the same reaction. So that's great. Two in a row. <laughs> yeah. And that nothing is more because we also talk about, you know, like one of the things that's great about doing the show with you and just interacting with our community is that. I still have a music store in my hometown that I can go to anytime I want, and they have tons of UCDs, and they have vinyl and all this stuff, and so I can go there and talk to the same guy that owns the store about albums that came out 20 years ago that I bought from him when I was in high school and stuff like that, but not everybody has that anymore, and not everyone has that circle of friends who listen to the same type of music that they do, and so that kind of stuff where you have a friend sort of turn you on to something and you've now added it to your sort of internal playlist of bands that you that you like. I love that even at our age now that that's something that can still happen and oh, yeah. can happen with bands that have been around for decades where now if you get introduced to this band you're like holy crap, I now have five albums, six albums, seven right. albums that I can go dig into and and that it it's like finding gold, you know? Well, a music discovery is, you know, an increasing problem in a sort of increasingly digital age. And I knock streaming services uh, quite often, but one of the things I will say is that uh, one good thing about streaming services is that they are, all of the big ones now are really, really focusing on their discovery tools and sort of curated, here's the other things you might like by bands that you don't listen to, uh, lists and stuff like that. And I gather that some of them are actually pretty good. And I've heard from people who subscribe to Spotify or Apple Music or whatever, or Pandora, and, you know, do listen to these lists, these suggested for you playlists, and find new music. And I'm not just talking about metal, I mean, across all sorts of genres. Um, And do find new bands as a result of these lists. So, you know, that is something that you won't get if you just purchase your music through iTunes. I mean, you know, other than by clicking around and listening to lots and lots of different samples and stuff from, you know, new albums that have come out this week on iTunes and stuff like that. Yeah. And for me, me, like those services are just a doorway into checking out a full album. So even, and and even old stuff, like we, you know, we talked about discovering a band whose discography you never really got into, but um, like on Spotify, they'll have an eighties heavy metal playlist. Right. And I throw that in. I was listening to that playlist the other day while I was writing and there was like four bands that I wrote down the name of that the album that they were playing a tune from was like from 1982. And I was like, holy crap, how did I never get into these guys? Or how did I never know about their, <laughs> and I started digging around. And so, you know, new, old, whatever, uh, I, I like the ability of those streaming services to just sort of uh, make me want to go check out more about a band. I think that's how I ended up figuring out Sister Sin at one point was just hearing a tune of theirs and being like, holy crap, I need to check out more about these guys. So. And that's how Brian became a Steel Panther fan. <laughs> yeah, right? That is one band that I, every time I see them, and they're on, they're on like the music sites all the time. Like you go to Blabbermouth or you go to, you know, any of these heavy metal news sites or stuff like that. And at least once a week, there's a Steel Panther article. And I'm like, how are these guys? I don't get, they're like a Spinal Tap type of. It is, it is a bit strange, yeah, but you know. 
Especially um, speak- when you still got bands like Cinderella out there who literally are still, you know, right, faster pussycat. Going, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Uh, speaking of new bands, actually, uh, one of our new patrons, new listener, Pavel, uh, recommended a couple of bands that we haven't mentioned before on the Facebook page. Uh, and one of them, I must say, I quite liked. There was a band called Uncle Acid and the Deadbeats, which is a kind of 60s, it's a pastiche of 60s heavy rock stuff. So they sound kind of like early Sabbath, deep purple, that sort of thing. But they do it extremely well. Like, I mean, I'm not going to say that they're my favorite new band or anything, but I checked them out. And what I've heard so far, if you like that era of music, this is really good stuff. It's They're a modern band. They are not, you know, this is not an old band with a, a massive discography from the 60s. They're a new band, but they really do sound like they've come straight out of, you know, 1967 or something. Um, yeah, just like really, really good. Like I say, nothing groundbreaking, not sort of innovative or anything. But if you like that sort of music, really good stuff. So thank you for that, Pavel. Yeah, we also had Max Schumann suggest to us uh, an album that he's listening to. He says, totally into Before the Dawn's Deadlight right now. You might like it too. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I did uh, make note of that. So Yeah, that was on Twitter. I did uh, listen to that this morning, actually. And yeah, it's okay. Um, it, it's okay. I mean, like nothing wrong with it. Not Again, not going to be my favorite album or anything, but I would happily put it on and listen to it, you know? Um, it's like a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, bands kind of, I guess you could, it's kind of like melodic death. Um, Uh but it's also slightly droney and I don't know, there's, there's a lot of bands that sound like that these days. An awful lot of them come from Scandinavia, uh, which probably isn't a surprise. And I kind of feel the same way about a lot of them in that they're all fine. There's nothing wrong with them. They're clearly all good musicians. The songs are perfectly well written. It's all fine. But nothing, nothing for me has that spark, you know, nothing really kind of leaps out and grabs me and makes me go, wow. Um, So, yeah, you know. uh, Which is kind of, that's like the dividing line, right, of of an album that you'll give a shot to, maybe listen to a couple times, and then it sort of fades back into the distance, or an album that ends up sticking in that sort of virtual record collection in your mind is that spark that you just talked about, like something, whether it's the punch of the music, how heavy it is, the vocal, there's got to be something that gives you the chills, you know, that, that when you listen to that song and the hairs on the back of your neck sort of stand up, like that's how you know, oh, this is one of those albums. This is an album I'm going to keep coming back to. Absolutely. Which is um, exactly what happened to me, which I think I've mentioned before with uh, the eye of every storm from neurosis, which was 2004. Um, and they'd been going by then for ages, but I'd never heard them. I'd heard of them, but never really listened to them. I heard that album, and it had exactly that effect on me. I was like, oh, wow, you know, this this really is something that I want to listen to again and again and get into. And I mentioned that specifically because there is a new Neurosis album coming. Hurrah! Nice. Um, yes, uh, coming out very soon, actually, I think in the next month or so. And this month's Decibel has magazine has a big feature on them, Dave Richardson. Uh, our famously curmudgeonly uh, listener, <laughs> you know, my erstwhile uh, occasional musical partner, um, saw it and messaged me to say, like, have you seen it? And I hadn't. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I'm not sure you can get it over here in the UK, but there is apparently a digital edition available that you can get from the Decibel website. So I may well splurge on that because it seems like most of the magazine, you know, they're calling it the Neurosis Issue 
Um, yep. So it seems like clearly there's going to be, you know, I would imagine several features taking up a good portion of the magazine. So yeah, I may well uh, buy that myself and read it because that looks interesting. I know a lot of people have been talking too about the Devin Townsend project because that was obviously the strapping young lad. We talked a little bit about that mm-hmm. in uh, in our video episode there. There's actually a really cool documentary, not documentary series, but like a five-part behind the scenes making of sort of series on YouTube. You can just, you know, search for it and you'll you'll be able to find it really quickly that gives you some insight into the making of that album. And watching a couple of those episodes actually made me want to listen to that new album, even though the song that someone posted on our Facebook page didn't immediately grab me. But I love that behind the scenes sort of stuff. That gets me every time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was ha- having now listened to a bit of Strapping Your Lad. Again, they were a band that I kind of, I did dismiss a little uh, when they first came out. And I'm not entirely sure why. It's one of those bands where I look back and I think, why didn't I give this band a chance? I don't know, but I, I didn't. And now, yeah, listening to even sort of the older stuff as well as the newer stuff, I'm like, huh, I could have really got into this band. It's probably a bit late now, but I could have really got into Strapping Young Lad, I think, uh, at the time, if I'd given them a chance. But I, I don't know why I didn't. I'm not sure. Maybe he didn't wear enough black. I don't know. Well, there you go. <laughs> yep. It could be as simple as that. Yeah. Maybe someone compared them to Duran Duran, and immediately you just stopped at that and walked away from it. <laughs> and we're like, well, that's the screw them then. Yeah. Up yours, buddy. Right. Uh, all right. So uh, moving on to Exodus then. Uh, give us... Professor Brian, give us your potted history of uh, Exodus, because it is a bit sort of long and complex. So try and summarize it for us, because like I say, almost everything I know about Exodus, other than obviously famously the the Kirk Hammett connection, but almost everything else that I know about them, I learned from you. So take it away. So I first discovered Exodus with their album, uh, Pleasures of the Flesh, which came out in, if I can scroll down to their discography here, uh, 1987. So it was their second album, and it had sort of a cannibalistic theme. And I just remember like that it was almost like the band, it was a photo cover of them sitting at uh, a bar that was dressed up with like skulls and things like that. And so that imagery drew me to the album, but I didn't really know who Exodus was at the time. I had not been super familiar with Bonded by Blood, which of course was their first album that came out in 1985, and one that is very highly spoken of when it comes to the thrash scene. But these these guys as a band are as important to what thrash metal in America is today as any other band that you could think of for a variety of reasons. Um, Tom Hunting, who is the drummer for Exodus, is in some circles credited with basically creating the style of drums that thrash metal, uh, when you think of thrash, when you think of thrash drumming, like he is right there. I know Dave Lombardo's name gets thrown around a lot in terms of like epic, you know, all time drummers, but Tom hunting right there. Um, Exodus was a band that Kirk Hammett was in before he left to go to Metallica. Uh, and he didn't, he wasn't on the first album, but he was in an early incarnation of this band. This band is responsible for, uh, basically Testament existing in its current form as it does today, because, Mm -hmm. uh, Steve Souza, who is currently singing with Exodus again, was one of the original singers. There was at least one before him for a band called Legacy which was the early incarnation of Testament. And when he left to go to uh, Exodus, he suggested that they hire Chuck Billy, 
So yeah, apparently him and Chuck Billy are really like good old friends. I want to say that Chuck Billy might be either the manager for Exodus or the manager for Steve Souza. Uh, who a lot of times when you hear Steve Souza's name, the, his nickname Zetro is the one that gets uh, thrown out. But in any case, uh, they are good friends. And there was that whole early thrash scene in that area was predicated on cassette tapes being traded between people. And so for a lot of these bands, you know, we hear a lot about how like with glam metal, it was all these bands sort of on the strip uh, doing shows, and by the time they got their first record deal, they had been sort of doing it for 10 years. In the thrash scene, it was kind of a similar situation where you had people trading tapes and people knew about bands before they ever sort of came out. But Exodus was very much in the beginnings of thrash metal. And what ended up happening to them was their first album, which is Bonded by Blood, did not come out until 1985. And by that time, you had just seen the release of Ride the Lightning by Metallica. So they were two albums in now. Uh, Megadeth would follow with their first album uh, about a month and a half after Bonded by Blood came out by Exodus. And of course, they had Mustaine's name attached to it, which was the guy that used to be in Metallica. And so they had that going for them. And there's a lot of people that believe that if Exodus had gotten that first album out sooner, that they would be in the same conversation as Metallica and Anthrax and Megadeth and Slayer. Um, That album was actually recorded almost a year earlier than it ended up coming out. And a lot of people felt like that hurt the band's standing in the wider consciousness of thrash metal and who started thrash metal and all that kind of stuff. But anybody who listens to thrash metal knows that these guys were super influential in the beginning of of that whole genre of music and um and so tom hunting who who has been in and out of the band a few times but is currently drumming and drummed on this album was a, a huge part of that gary holt obviously was not the original guitar player in exodus he came in a couple of years later but he's basically been the face of exodus for whatever 35 since, plus yeah. years yeah at, at this point in time um and you had uh, Paul Bailoff, who was the original singer of Exodus, was actually fired after the first album. He was the guy that played on Bonded by Blood. Uh, he actually passed away, I think it was in 2002, from a stroke. And I want to say that was related to years and years of abuse on his body from from you know drugs and alcohol and that kind of stuff. Uh, they've actually had two members pass away over the time that the band has been sort of coming together, which is not super surprising given the era that they came up in and the fact that they've had about 40 people come through that band, you know, since they they basically started. But right now you have two guys in the band, uh, well, three guys in the band that are considered to be part of, uh, if not the original lineup, then certainly a core lineup for Exodus. A classic lineup, yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, Steve Souza and Gary Holt and Tom Hunting. And so... um, you know, and the guy they have playing bass now, who's been around for since the mid '90s, I believe, Jack Gibson, is just a phenomenal bass player. So, from a from a musical standpoint, like I always think of Exodus as like, what if Megadeth was heavier? Because one of the things that draws me to Megadeth is their technical proficiency and mm-hmm. their um, their technicality, but they're they have a much cleaner sound, right? Uh, and I don't want to say more produced sound, but certainly a much cleaner sound. I think when I think of Megadeth, you know, the the tagline for Megadeth that always jumps out to me that was on an early poster that I had in my room was the world's state of the art speed metal band, and that's always the way I thought about Megadeth. Is they were sort of like the nerds' version of thrash metal. Well, and I think speed metal is a much better descriptor for. Megadeth than thrash metal, to be yes. honest. I've, I've never really thought of them as a thrash band because they are all about Mustaine's 
technical, as you said, technical proficiency and sheer skill and everything in the songwriting and the production and the mixing is geared towards highlighting that technical skill. You know, that is the be all and end all of Megadeth. Without that, you don't have Megadeth. And, right. you know, you, you may love that or you may not, but that is, I mean, it makes them stand out, certainly, but that is all, everything that Megadeth's about. And it's funny you should say that because while I was listening to this, I was thinking, this is kind of like a good Megadeth. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't actually fault you for saying that because I would say <laughs> that Exodus is to riffs what Megadeth is to solos. Like one of the things that I love, love, love about Megadeth is that Dave Mustaine and whoever else he has playing guitar with him, they put so much emphasis on creating these blistering and and just blow you away guitar solos. And don't get me wrong, Dave Mustaine's a phenomenal riff writer as well. But Gary Holt, to me, it is easily the best thrash riff writer of anyone that I've ever heard, and maybe just one of the best riff writers ever in my mind, because his the riffs that he writes are, if you just listen to the album once, you'd be like, yep, this is a thrash album. It's super heavy. Yep, the, the riffs are very fast, blah, blah, blah. When you start to get into these albums of Exodus and you start to listen to some of the the complexity of the riffs that he's creating and the layers and the, the changes throughout the course of a song and the little uh, emphasis that he does or the tweaking of a riff or something like that. Like he, he's uh, a decent soloist. And I think that Lee Altus, who is the other guitar player is also a pretty good soloist, but I do not listen to Exodus for their solos. I listen to Exodus for their riffs and Gary Holt writes some just melting and, and just, uh, hair on the back of your neck riffs. And they're all over this. Like this album is a perfect example of that. But if you wanted to hear if someone says, well, what is thrash metal? What, what, when you say thrash metal, what do you mean? Hand them a copy of Bonded by Blood. Yes, it's a little dated now. Yes, it has that raw sound of the early 80s albums. But in terms of the quintessential like sound of what thrash metal is, that album and even the title track on that album are a text. It should be in a textbook when there's a definition of thrash metal. So they are, without a shadow of a doubt, pioneers they deserve to be in every discussion about thrash metal and who the forefathers of thrash metal are and i feel like they are criminally underappreciated and the one good thing about gary holt playing in slayer now other than the fact that gary holt's in slayer is that i think it's leading people to go and check out exodus a bit more right. and that's a great thing because this is a band that deserves to be talked about in the same conversation as the big four without a doubt right well and slayer obviously one of and we discussed we talked about this when we did the slayer album you know one of the most famous and well-known heavy metal bands on the planet to for the sure. point where yeah you know my parents know who slayer are for heaven's sake um they may not know any slayer music but they hear they've heard the name they know who they are and so yeah ha being uh, you know, the sort of being anointed, if you like, by Slayer very publicly in the, obviously with Hanneman's sad death, you know, right. saying, okay, we, we need another guitarist. You know, we can't do this with one guitarist. Everybody knows that there's got to, we've got to have somebody. So to then say, so we're going to get our old friend who, by the way, was there with us 
in uh, at the start, Absolutely. Like right at the start of this, has been there all along, uh, and you know, incidentally, can play just every bit as well as Jeff Hanneman. Um, and to then c- consistently keep him, that's the thing. Like they could have gone through a revolving door of guitarists. They could have had a different one every tour. You know, it could have been a mess. Instead, they picked Gary Holt, and then he's been with them ever since. It's almost like he's a new member of the band. No, he's not writing on the albums, but it is almost like he's a new member of the band rather than just a stand-in. And that's got to have an effect on Slayer's much larger fan base saying, well, who is this guy? Yeah, he can play really well. Uh, And the other guys in Slayer, Kerry King, clearly respects him and likes him. So who is he? What else has he done? Oh, he was in this band called Exodus, blah, blah. And you can see how that would drive people Slayer fans to then go, maybe I'll go and check them out. And then, of course, they meet, they're faced with, as we said, you know, some of the most incredibly out and out thrash music you could ever hear. A lot of them are going to like it, you'd hope. (laughs) Well, and I mean, Slayer fans in many ways are very much like Metallica fans, fiercely loyal. Oh, sure. Um, Gary Holt got a lot of blowback when he first came to the band. People did not like the way that he not jumps around stage. I mean, the way that Slayer fans reacted, it's almost like he's, you know, from an 80s band running up platforms and jumping off and stuff like that. Hanneman because Hanneman and King just plant their feet on the floor and don't move. (laughs) Right. They're they're, uh, very Motorhead esque, I think, in the way that they, you know, carry themselves on stage. But uh, but here's the thing. Gary Holt's a better guitar player than Kerry King ever was. He's a better guitar player than Jeff Hanneman ever was. He's arguably the best guitar player in any of those bands, maybe save, I don't know. I, I would put Alex Skolnick up there. I would put Mustaine up there. But Gary Holt is a freaking unbelievable guitar player. And the smartest thing that Kerry King could do, because he's become... He is basically like the Scott Ian and Charlie Benante of Slayer. He oh, sure, sort of yeah. controls everything. He he you know he records uh, multiple in- instruments in the studio. He does most of the writing now, um, well, and he, and he's basically the law. You know his word exactly is law. Yeah, smart. And he did not let Gary Holt write on Repentless, which was the last album that Slayer put out, which was a Slayer album. Uh, and it was a good album. I enjoyed that album. That album is nothing compared to the album that we're talking about today. And the smartest thing that he could do is let Gary Holt write for the next Slayer album. Um, now, the flip side of that is I'm kind of glad that he didn't, because that means that Gary Holt pours all of his riffs into Exodus. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm more than happy to reap the benefit of that, because this dude has riffs for day. I mean, you could tell just by some of the songs where he's using multiple riffs in one song that could easily anchor their own song. And he's using two or three of them in one song. So, I mean, you can tell that this guy just has buckets. He's got closets full of riffs at home. I mean, he's just he's just emptying out the junk drawer on the floor and throwing riff after riff after riff into these songs. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, it just this is a band that deserves more respect for sure. And as far as the, the singer goes, uh, Steve Souza, he replaced Bailoff uh, after the first album. He was in the band until like 92 or so, and then ended up leaving, got kicked out, whatever. Then they had um, Rob Dukes come in in the 2000s. And I think Rob Dukes did four albums with them. I might be wrong about that. Let me scroll down to their discography here. 
uh, because it was, uh, let's see, Tempo the Dam, one, two, three. He did three albums with them, it looks like, during 2005, 2007, 2010. Uh, different vocal style, still brought a lot of energy to their sound. Um, but right before Blood In, Blood Out was going in to be recorded, this was in late like 2013, early 2014, um, they brought Steve Souza back in, which was kind of controversial at the time because when Souza left the band – um, in the early 2000s, there was there was a that was an ugly split. Like it was him, really acrimonious. Yeah, together, yes, exactly. Yeah. Like Gary Holt did not have anything nice to say. Basically, accused Souza of abandoning them. You know, um, right before a, a show or something like that, and and it got really ugly. Um, but he's back in, and everything that I've read over the past couple of years about him being back in is like everyone sort of appreciates the fact that they're getting to be together right now making this music together and they have a different perspective and and in a lot of ways i mean these guys are in their early 50s now so in a lot of ways it's it's one of those uh you get a little older you get more mature you have a different perspective and you start to appreciate a what you have and b the fact that you're not going to have it for for right, that the much fact that you're still able to do it absolutely and and to be able to put out an album in 2014 that you could basically throw down against I mean, anything any of the Big Ten bands have put out in the past decade or so, I mean, that they're just as relevant, just as vital today as they've ever been. And um, and that's exciting to me because one of the things that I kept thinking about while I was listening to this album is that as I get older, what I appreciate about bands that I grew up with who are now making some of their best music, and you can look at the new Anthrax album, you can look at the new Megadeth album, is... I enjoy bands that just know what the fuck they're doing now. Like, they, like when you listen to them, you're like, these guys know, they just know what the hell they're doing. And there's so much to be said for that. You can feel the confidence in the album and in the work that these guys are putting out. Now, you can feel it when you go to see them live. Like, they just know what they're doing. They're still able to do it. They haven't reached that point yet where they're too old or they're they're looking withered on stage or they can't, you know, hit the vocals or keep up with the music anymore. Like they're still in that pocket where we know what we're doing. We've seen and done just about everything now. And all of that experience and all of that um, perspective goes into putting out these sort of exclamation point albums of like, if this is our last album, then right, right. Exodus could go out on this album and be like, we're we've established ourselves in the in the past, present, and future of Thrash, um, I certainly hope it's not their last album. But given the lineup changes and given the the rocky history of the band, and given Gary Holt's commitments to Slayer now, like I don't know how much Exodus we're going to get over the next five to ten years. And I, I certainly hope we get a couple more albums out of them. But this is just a exclamation point on a very um, interesting career and really brought me back into this band because I was a Steve Souza fan. So when he left in the early nineties, that kind of was my, or the band actually took a hiatus. I was out of Exodus for a long time. Right. And then he came back and did Tempo of the Damned in the early two thousands that came out in 2004 and then he was gone again. And so I really hadn't paid much attention to Exodus during their Rob Dukes era and then, boom, they come back with Blood In, Blood Out, and it's announced that Sousa's coming back. And I was like, wow, I'm back in. And what a great time to get back in. So, um, so well, yeah. And you, you talked about the, the heaviness and putting everything else aside, just in terms of sheer heaviness, sheer weight. You're right that this album stands up against and exceeds, frankly, 
almost anything put out by the big four in the last five to 10 years. I can't think of any um, album by any of the, those other bands that is as heavy as this. Now, you, you, you know, you may prefer it or not, uh, you know, not talking about sort of just actual taste, but in terms of sheer heaviness of the music, this is incredibly heavy. And as you say, you know, for guys who are in their 50s, Oh, well, it's like I said about uh, the last Motorhead album. Remember, you remember I said that that's like that was the heaviest album they'd made right. in years, um, and that was less than six months before Lemmy died. For heaven's sake, I know um, it's it's incredible, and which speaks again to what you just said about you don't know how many more Exodus albums there will be. Well, it's not just because of Gary Holt's commitments and what; it's also because these guys aren't getting any younger, and you know. As we all know, getting older, frankly, once you're past 40, anything can happen. You oh, know, without really, a shadow of a really, doubt. Really, you could just drop dead tomorrow for no particularly heinous reason. Or, I mean, putting aside all the usual things about you could get run over by a bus or whatever. But in terms of just your body starting to fail, once you're past 40, you know, really, every day is like, well, you know, this could be the last one. So, yeah, you don't yes, know how many albums you're going to get out of thought that I have, unfortunately, way too much. Oh, me too. But, <laughs> but, but the, you know, you don't know how many more albums you're going to get out of any of these bands. They could, you know, look at I know Jeff Hanneman being a perfect case in point. Absolutely. You know, yes, I, you know because of his lifestyle, but also because of that just completely random spider bite, for heaven's sake. And two years later, you know, makes him so ill that two years later, so weak, I should say, he just drops dead. Yeah. Um, and it would have been very easy for Slayer to go, okay, that's it. You know, for Kerry King to go, right end of the band much right. like typo negative did when pete Steele died they were like well that's the end of the band um it would have been very easy for tom Arier and kerry king to go right you know that that's it and we're calling it a day and maybe we'll do something else but it won't be slayer right um, and then sit on our 30 years of legacy because we don't have anything right. else to prove absolutely and who could who could have blamed them if they had no absolutely yeah yeah you know they didn't do that and and that's wonderful but they could have and that would have been the end of all your new Slayer records. So I think that's something you've got to bear in mind with these bands that have been around for so long, yeah, is that every release is, you know, potentially their last one. Well, and like I said, Exodus was a band that did not get as much notoriety, as much credit, as much time in the limelight as a lot of these other bands. That's not to say that if you were listening to Headbangers Ball, you know, back in the day, that you wouldn't be familiar with them. I'm just looking through... Um, they had Unbonded by Blood. You, you've got just a slew of great tracks. Obviously, Bonded by Blood was one that they were very well known for. Um, a Lesson in Violence, um, Strike of the Beast, that kind of stuff it was was all sort of classic tunes that they were known for. And then a lot of people remember Toxic Waltz, which came off of Fabulous Disaster. That was a song that they were, you know, pretty popular for at the time. Um, on Pleasures of the Flesh, which was their second album, you had Brain Dead. Um, Chemical. There was a lot of good tunes on that album too. So they they were out there. Um, they didn't have as many videos, I don't think, as a lot of the other bands of that time. But they they were. If you were listening to a lot of different thrash music, you were probably hearing songs from Exodus come up. But um, their first four albums, which is Bonded by Blood, Pleasures of the Flesh, Fabulous Disaster, really those first three are must listens. If you are looking to dig into their discography, if you're looking to sort of get an early lesson in thrash, uh, impact is imminent from 1990 was okay. And force of habit is really kind of a departure. And that's one of those things. Um, when you think about bands like Testament as well, uh, I think what hurt 
some of those bands over the years is they really had some departure albums where they had a very different sound and um, they were not able to weather those storms in the way that a Metallica was. You know, when Metallica made a giant departure, it was into a more mainstream sound that got them more and more fans. When some of these other bands who were part of this early thrash metal scene made a departure album, it went in the other direction. And I think that's right. the case for Exodus as well, you know, um, and and then couple that with the lineup changes and they just didn't stay as relevant as a lot of these other bands at the time, despite having just a super solid foundation when you look at those first three albums. Right. And just before we mention those first three albums, I mean, for me, the big difference, because you're right, almost all bands from that era, and frankly, a lot of bands from modern eras as well, have done that where, you know, maybe they've got a bit more money or they've signed to a major label or whatever, and somebody, or the band themselves, have, you know, persuaded themselves to say, okay, we need to... We should try something a bit more mainstream. The kids aren't into really heavy metal anymore. Let's do something a bit more mainstream and, yes, commercial. And what really separates the success of those albums, and I don't just mean commercial success, is the songwriting. This is where the sort of the songwriting ability of the band is exposed, I think. Right. Because you can, to an extent, uh, and, you know, forgive me, Megadeth fans or whoever for saying this, but you can <laughs> you can hide uh, not bad but sort of ungreat songwriting behind technical proficiency and just an avalanche of riffs and you know that's something that you can do in metal and you can do it in many other genres as well you know hello the auto tune craze of like you know five to ten years ago you can hide a lot of sins behind throwing stuff uh, at a song uh, and it's but when you strip those things away, all you have left is the actual songwriting. And I think in the case of the metal bands, when a, when they get, sort of try to make a mainstream album, a lot of them, their songwriting is revealed. And, you know, a few of them come up short. Metallica didn't and were rewarded by, you know, regardless of whether you say the Black Album is or isn't a true thrash album. Yeah, maybe it's not. But those are great songs. Just forget about genre. Those are great songs on that album. and. That's why it had such phenomenal success um, compared to uh, what was the Testament album um, that they did with uh, the where they went commercial, the one with um, Electric Crown on it. Oh, uh, was it uh, not the Legacy? It was no, it was uh, it wasn't uh, Souls of Black. It was the one before that. Um, was... I will look it up. <laughs> the Ritual. That's what it was, the ritual. That's it, the ritual, right? Which was, uh, which was their, you know, attempt at a commercial album, and it's not about a bad album. And I'm trying to think of the song off of that one. Well, there are only like three or four actual really good songs on it. Return to Serenity is the ballad, if that's what you're saying. Yes, that is the one I was thinking. Return to Serenity. And Return to Serenity is a great song. Uh, So is So Many Lies. So is Electric Crown. Oh, So Many Lies is great. But then there are also songs on there like Troubled Dreams and Agony and Deadline, which are not that great, you know, and because they're being made in this simpler, more commercial style, they're just not that great. And it shows that, you know, their songwriting is not as consistent as it could have been. Um, and, you know, we can talk about Testament at a later date and how oh, we will. They, they abandoned that and decided to instead go ultra heavy and thank goodness, because they're so much better as a result. But 
I really think that it is when the songwriting is exposed that some of these, uh, a lot of these bands that metal bands that go commercial fall down and and that's what happens. And to an extent, I think that's true. That's a long winded way of getting around to saying, I think that's true about this album or about based on this album about Exodus as well in the, and I'm not knocking it at all. I actually enjoyed this album a lot, but it is clearly a case of throwing riffs. Like you said, there's like four or five riffs in every song that could actually anchor a whole song by themselves. Uh Uh, And instead he just keeps throwing riff after riff after riff at it. And yet it's great, therefore, as a thrash metal album. But if that's how you write songs, you can see why he might have trouble trying to write stuff that's more commercial and more mainstream because it's just a completely different way of writing music. Well, and that goes back to the whole thing that we talked about before about bands that just know what they're doing, right? You go through this period of time over the course of a career where the entire musical landscape changes around you. And you have these bands that have been doing, they have a defined style and all of a sudden everything changes. And so they're thinking, well, we need to change with that in order to stay relevant. And, And almost every band goes through that period when there's a major change of the landscape you know, during the course of their career. Oh, and yeah. The, there, was, there wasn't a band around that wasn't affected by grunge, apart from exactly. maybe Motorhead. <laughs> exactly, right. And you could say Motorhead, you could... Uh, even Slayer, I think, kind of... No, Slayer did. You know, yeah, Slayer you know, were affected moved by around. absolutely. Yeah. Um, but you look at Megadeth's Risk, you look at, you know, some of the moves that Metallica made, clearly, um, you know, at the time, Anthrax was going through a major change anyways with, uh, you know, with John Bush coming on. But... Uh, but yeah, and then it gets to a point in their career where if they weather that storm and they're still around, they get back to the point of, you know what? Let's play to our strengths. Let's remember what established us in the first place and let's go back to doing what we do well. And I think that's when you get this sort of second wind of a band's career where they start to really put things together. And sometimes it takes them a few albums to get back to their original sound. I think yep, that's what you're yep. seeing with Metallica now, you know, where um commercially, of course, they've remained successful. They've been the biggest band of all time. But I think when you listen to their sound, they are still making their way back from St. Anger, where they so drastically, you know, just well, wow, I don't know. You could say they're making their way back from load. You really. could absolutely. You could. You could also say that. I mean, really, the the black album is the turning point of what their old sound was. You know, moving into their new sound, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. so they they've been on this journey now to make their way back to what established them in the first place. Um, and as you can see, that's very difficult to do. And you can listen. That's one of the things that makes Metallica so fascinating is that you can hear it. You can hear the the angst, you know, of like trying to find their sound. And it's so amazing that it's a band that is on that big of a stage under that big of a microscope that is struggling that much with their sound. Feeling you know what that I mean? much pressure. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's, well, it's, and taking so long to record. And I, I really think that that's, and I, I don't know about this album, but I kind of get the impression this album doesn't sound like it took three years to record, you know? Right. Um, and I really think that's an issue for a lot of the, bigger bands and bands like Metallica who have a lot of personal issues and stuff going on as well. Um, Just take less time to record an album. Like don't, because the longer you take, the more you overthink it. Yeah, it's like Def Leppard syndrome. You know what I mean? That's where where Def Leppard went from. uh, That's where Def Leppard went from being a band that was raw and 
very hard rock, even skirting the line of heavy metal sometimes, to becoming a band that sounds like their vocals are played on a keyboard because they just <laughs> spent so much time in. And the, Joe Elliott is famous for this of of just producing and producing and and cleaning and and it just. It's not at some point it just becomes more of a science project than an actual album. Yeah. And so many, and I won't say all, but so many of my favorite albums are ones that you then find out the band recorded really quickly, either because they had no money, so they had to record them really quickly, or just because things came together really easily and, you know, they just sort of okay, let's get in, get out, and just do it. And those albums aren't perfect as a result, sonically perfect. But to me, they often sound so much better than, yeah, these albums that take two years to write and then another year to record. And you're just like, that. it's 60 minutes of music. How can it possibly take you that long to record? Well, and again, it goes it also goes back to who are they bringing in as a producer and an engineer? Who uh, who controls the band? You know, we talked about Kerry King. We talked about um, you know Scott Ian and Charlie Benante, and it's like, and then you, of course you've got Ulrich and Hetfield and and that kind of stuff. It's like when you look at all those pieces, it starts to give you a really good idea of like why some of these things take so long and and who they work with and and how this why this album sounds like this album and stuff like that and that. That is like such a huge piece of the process. Like when you think about Bob Rock's influence on Metallica's sound as they transitioned to the Black yep. Album, like he is—he's a member of Metallica. I mean, not only has he obviously played on on albums as well, but he is—he's like the fifth Beatle. You know what I mean? Like he's—he's he's just <laughs> as responsible for the Metallica sound and what it evolved into as as you know, arguably anybody else in that band. And so. Um, that stuff is kind of fascinating too. Which uh, on this album, Blood In Blood Out, the um, guy that they were working with was Andy Sneap, who obviously has a very storied history. He's worked with Except, he's worked with Saxon, he's worked with Amon Amarth, he's worked with Arch Enemy, Exodus, Megadeth, Cataclysm, Creator, Testament, uh, Nevermore. Um, so they're working with a guy who knows what he's doing in terms of putting together a heavy metal thrash album, but also um, Jack well, Gibson. And Sneep is also, let's mention in case people aren't familiar with, I mean, they should be familiar with his name, but if in case they don't realize, Sneep is also a musician and a guitarist yes. and a songwriter himself. He was, you know, that's what he did first before he became a producer. And he still does it. He still goes out and performs with, you know, for um, Sabbath reunions and things like that and uh -huh. Hell reunions, I think. So, yeah, you know, he's still a working musician. He's not just the guy behind the console. He's been on both sides of that desk. Yes, and on this album, uh, Blood In, Blood Out, he didn't, he wasn't responsible for all of the production because Jack Gibson, who is the bass player, he engineered the vocals, the guitars, and the bass on this album. Andy engineered the drums and then mixed and mastered the whole thing. And so Jack Gibson, the bass player, is one of the major contributors to how this how this album ended up sounding. And uh and when you think about that and then you think about what the rhythm section sounds like in this band, that to me makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. And I oh, yeah. love the production of this album. Um I think this album sounds you know, just purely sonically sounds amazing. Amazing. It is one of the best production stroke mixing jobs on a metal album i have ever heard it is just fantastic it occupies the entire spectrum 
everything is clean and yet also immensely heavy. Uh, yes. It's just, it's amazing. It's such a fantastic sound job. I'm so glad that you said that because I, that is one of the thing that things that just rings in my head every time I listen to this is like, there's so many great albums out there where the production is off and you're like, oh God, if they had just moved this up and moved this back a little bit. Right. Or, if only the guitars hey, sounded better or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or this particular instrument sounds a little bit flat or, you know, we make fun of the, the sound of Lars's drums all the times and stuff like that. And then you listen to this album and each- and we just make fun of Lars all the time. <laughs> right. But, but each piece of this album is just like perfect in the mix. Like you can hear- everything yep. you can hear the bass on this album and by the way you can really hear the bass on this album it's freaking great it um, really is yeah I, but like here here is to me like exhibit a of like why is it important to have a rich sounding rhythm section on your heavy metal album i would put this down in front of people and say now imagine if you dialed the bass and the drums back in this mix and just let the guitar like most bands do let the guitars you know carry everything dominate well, not totally just carry, different but sound. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And and granted, in in uh, Lee Altus and Gary Holt, you have two dominating guitar players, and you have one of the best riff writers of all time. But that does not overshadow the masterful work of Tom Hunting on drums. Like, re- what a beast! And then, of course, Jack Gibson on bass, who's finger picking. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw the video that I put up on the YouTube page, but uh, the Body Harvest song. There was a Yamaha video where Yamaha yes. had those two in the studio, and they just played the rhythm section of the beginning of that song. Holy crap, man! Like, just go watch that. And well, bask I'm going to put that video. I'll put that video in the show notes because yeah, I watched it, and yes, I was impressed, and I immediately thought, okay, this has to go in the show notes just Ugh. to yeah to show off how good this rhythm section are. It's I am uh, if nothing else, I'm amazed that Tom Hunting is as plays like he does at his age. Oh. And I, I'm trying to word that carefully because <laughs> I don't mean to be disrespectful. Quite the opposite. I have enormous amounts of respect. I had no... Listening to this album, you would think this is one of those cases, and let's face it, it happens a lot, where a band of older musicians, where the drummer can't keep up and they've had to recruit a younger musician, a younger drummer, to keep up with them and keep, you know, playing at that sort of frenetic pace. And not at all. You see this guy, and he clearly is in his 50s. And he seems like a fairly chill, mellow dude. Super you put chill, him behind yeah. the Put him behind the drums. And the other thing is, with older drummers, you uh, older metal drummers, you see a lot of them, frankly, don't move as much as they used to. Do you know what right. I mean? When they were younger, be banging their head all over the place. And then as they get older and the back starts to go and the joints creak, they're still playing the same stuff but they ain't moving their head and they ain't bobbing along and they're not waving their arms around. They're doing absolute minimal movements necessary to make those sounds uh, in order to sort of, you know, stop their body from falling to pieces. Totally understandable. He's not doing that at all. He is thrashing around like crazy and playing this incredibly fast, complex thrash drumming at his age. It's astounding. Right. And there's times on this album where he's playing... uh sort of the quote-unquote traditional thrash drum line, you know, that you can you can yep. almost picture it in your head, <laughs> just like you could picture with 80s rock or you could picture it like, but most of the time he is playing like 
He reminds me of Vinny Apice only in the way that when we listen to that Dio album and you listen to some of the fills that he did and they just felt like they were perfect for whatever the song needed at that time or or whatever the riff was or something like that. Like Tom Hunting, the way he chases riffs, the way he uh, leads into certain parts of the song, like and then just the way that Gibson works off of him, like they are a joy to listen to. I almost wish sometimes that I could turn the guitar and vocals off. And I want the whole, I, I wish I could buy the whole album as individual just tracks. Just the rhythm section. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like, I wish I could just buy the whole album because that's my, that's my new thing. Like, let's get a petition started for that. Like, for any of these albums that we buy now, like, we should be able to separate all the tracks. And I know people have been able to do that, you know, with different pieces of software and stuff. But I would love to just be able to be like, okay, today I'm going to listen to this album, but just the drums and bass. Okay, I'm going to listen to this album, but just the guitar riffs or something like that because right. um, but the good thing is you don't have to guess on this album because to go back to what you were saying the production and the mix on this album is so good that there's nothing that gets short shrift and so it's not like you will have to be like oh I wish I could hear this more you can hear it all you can yeah. hear it all in the mix it is it is amazing um now before we get on to the individual tracks we <laughs> we should say that also means that you can very clearly hear the vocals and you you already knew because before I even listened to this album, oh, I called you it. Posted, yeah, you posted on the Facebook page and said like, you know, kind of. I, I can't remember exactly your exact words, but you basically said, kind of feel like opinions are going to be divided over the vocals. Yeah, yeah. I feel like if there is one point that will be the most divisive, it will be you either. I don't want to say he's a love it or hate it, but he's a. I, I actually have come to love. Uh, Steve Souza's voice. However, I that's the singer that I grew up with, and so I right. I prefer him in this band. To me, he's part of the sound of this band. But I do feel like your mileage on this album will come down to I can't stand that guy's vocals. Therefore, I had a tough time getting into this album. Um, whether or not they're a distraction for you is going to be whether or not you enjoy this album. I think. I think some of it does come down to just what you are used to and what you can get used to because. Uh, I, I was not a big fan <laughs> of the vocals. I must be said, um, I quite, when he goes really high, I actually quite like that. And when he do, goes low, when he goes deep, which he's clearly capable of doing sure. again, quite like it, but his default scream lands right, right in that sort of whatever the opposite of a sweet spot is yeah. uh, <laughs> for me. I, I tend to like. And I, I, I've given this a lot of thought because I'm like, what is it about this guy's voice that just sort of grates on me? Um, I saw him, somebody compare him to Bon Scott. I was going to say, what if Bon Scott and Brian Johnson had a baby and that baby grew up to <laughs> sing for Exodus? Right. And it's, it's, yeah, it's apt. And honestly, that's one of the reasons why I could never get into ACDC. Like, I'm not an ACDC fan. And one of the reasons is that I can't stand Bon Scott's vocals. And consequently, um, I adore them. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, it, totally a personal taste thing. How and same. What I was going to say was, that I tend to like screamers who or growlers who sound more natural. Um, and I mean, not that it is natural, but there's something about this style, this tone that sounds forced to me. Whereas I'm a big fan of. Uh, screamers and growlers like LG Petrov from Entombed or Lemmy, obviously, you know, the classic uh, growler, uh, or even Chuck Billy when he growls as opposed to screams. Um, 
it sounds a lot more natural to me. Uh, but when I was thinking about that, it suddenly occurred to me, I also love death. And Chuck Schuldiner's voice actually had a similar effect on me when I first heard it. Like, it took me a lot of listens, frankly, um, to, uh, to death albums to sort of get over Chuck Schuldiner's voice. Um, and even more so on his la- the last album before he died, um, he decided to sort of shift his register up half an octave or whatever, or even more than that. I don't know. And that was sounded even worse. I I unfortunately can barely listen to that album because it just sounds completely wrong to me, but his regular voice, not that it sounds like this, but it had a similar effect on me and that I was like, Oh, that doesn't sound good at all. Um, but I liked the music so much that I, you know, just kind of got used to it and got over my problems with his voice. So that did occur to me that maybe it is just a matter of exposure. Maybe if I had got into Exodus in the late 80s uh, and sort of had been listening to them all this time like you, that I would just, I wouldn't even think twice about Sousa's voice. I don't know. I think that you just hit on something very important, though, in terms of, uh, but I do, so I, I agree with exactly with what you're saying. I think that had you been exposed to that voice in past albums, then it wouldn't be as big of a stumbling block. I think that his voice is a little bit more manic in this album. I mean, just because I went back and listened to some early Exodus albums before um, as I prepared for this episode, and he's a little bit cleaner and a little less manic on some of the early albums. Granted, he's younger as well. And I think also that has an effect. Yeah. And this is an album where he is returning to this band for the first time in 10 years. And so I think you also hear every every word is him bringing 110% to this production. Right, proving that it was worth bringing him back. Absolutely. So I think there's some factors in there, but I also think that um, you hit on something which I find really interesting too, which is that when you listen to an album, um, there's often, and Slayer comes to mind for me, like there's often pieces that don't click in immediately and take a little longer to click in. Like maybe it's the guitars, like you're loving the rhythm section, you love the vocalist, but the guitars or the solos aren't doing anything for you. But after multiple listens, those start to click in and you start to appreciate them a little bit more. And it sort of brings up this idea that, you know, you can listen to an album at least three times, which is what I uh, talk about all the time. But in a lot of ways, um, albums don't hit you as a whole. They hit you as bits and pieces until they finally sort of become a whole in your mind. And so different parts of that experience are going to take longer to sort of assimilate than others. I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but I, th- I think no, that's... No, no, no. A- I, I know what you mean. Although the one thing I would say is that I don't think that invalidates... Oh, no. Just in case, it, just in case anybody thinks we are trying to sort of, you know, engender some kind of Stockholm syndrome in people. I don't think that invalidates uh, a sort of an immediate, oh, no, this isn't for me reaction, which I've had. I mean, like, you know, there have been, and in fact, there have been on this show, you know, there have been a couple of albums uh, that I've, I have listened to way more than three times uh, and still just like sure. the, the, you know, the Queensryche album. I listen to that a lot and I have not listened to it since we did that episode because it just, you know, you're right. Everything did kind of click, but it still didn't, not in a good way. <laughs> yeah, no. And the example that I was thinking of with Slayer is like, when I listen to a Slayer album, it takes me a lot of listens for it to really click with me because the first few times through, 
all I hear is the best part of each song. Like you can pick any Slayer song right, and right. there is a, a breakdown riff in that song, which is like the hook. And it's usually There's 30 not, seconds. That's amazing. Exactly. Yeah. And it's that 30 seconds of amazingness that always hooks me with a Slayer album. And it's like, it's like that is going a hundred miles an hour and the rest of the album is going 50 miles an hour. And it takes me multiple listens for the rest of the song to catch up to that one part until I can finally appreciate the entire song um, as it is, because it's just that one hook that gets me, you know, through. Right. <laughs> and and for Exodus, I think it's sort of the opposite, where everything about the music is amazing. And if Zetro's voice is a distraction for you, that's the piece that's going 50 miles an hour while the rest of the song right. is already locked in. And it takes those multiple listens for that to, for maybe not for people to warm to it, but at least for it not to be a distraction anymore, because then you can actually hear the rest of the song without the voice taking you out of it. I struggle with that, frankly, with every band that has a Cookie Monster vocalist. Right. I really struggle with the growly vocal, like even Amana Marth, which that that their new album is insanely good. But that growly stuff, man, my first reaction to it is to cringe, and it takes me many lessons to get past that and really just enjoy the totality of it. Um, but I can totally, but yeah, for, for Exodus to me, it's always been, you either like this guy or don't. And even the fans who um, have followed Exodus throughout the years, some of them prefer, I don't know if you can hear the thunder in the background, but it's, wow, we're, we're getting yeah. some thunderstorms <laughs> here now. Uh, so if I have to uh, grab my laptop and run to the basement, I'll let you know. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, with Exodus's history, uh, Paul Bailoff was not, as Bon Scotty as Steve Souza. So that first album, I think, has much more of a James Hetfield sort of vocal tone right. to it than uh, the stuff with Souza, although his early stuff is is less sort of raspy than it is now. Um, but the Rob Duke stuff, he definitely still had a bit of a rasp to him, but nowhere near what Steve Souza's was. So there are people who actually preferred that um, that time of Exodus's history with, with – um, you know, Dukes as the singer, and we're very sad to see him go and Susan to come back. But then there's a lot of other fans that are sort of like me who he sort of was the face of that band for him. So, yeah. All right. So, uh, the album itself is one hour, three minutes long, which is on the long side, although I gather that the previous album was even longer. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, clearly not a band uh, making three-minute pop songs. Which is um, interesting it, because you think thrash record, you think 35 minutes, right? Well, early thrash records, right. certainly. All, although, you know, pretty much all of the big four have, their albums have gotten longer as they've gone on. <laughs> um, there's 11 tracks here. Most of them are over five minutes and many of them are over six. Uh, in fact, the only track, ironically, less than four minutes long is the title track, which I, I did kind of laugh at. Yeah, and this album actually had a bonus track on it as well, which is an old Angel Witch song called um, Angel of Death that uh, both, I think it was both Lee Altus and Tom Hunting have played in Angel Witch. That's another band that has gone through tons and tons of lineup changes over the years. Um, but but that was only on certain versions of the album, so we're not going to really get into that. Right, yeah, I uh, I don't have that uh, on my copy, no. Um I was going to say, but because of, and we talked about this, because of the style of the music, because it is so thrashy, um, it doesn't feel like any of them, even though they're so long, it doesn't feel like they're sort of massive Doom-style epics. Uh, and actually, the structure did remind me of early Metallica. 
Yeah. You know, most of the time the extension comes from long middle eights and solos. And I know you said that the solos aren't an em- uh, you know, aren't a sort of point of emphasis on this album, but there are so a lot of solos here. Um and some of them are quite long. They are and and uh what I like about this particular pairing, I love bands that have like this dual guitar attack and they have uh very different styles between the two. They guitar trade players. off the solos, yeah. And they yeah. do that almost on every song on this album. And what's cool is that, um, and you'll notice right out of the gate, is that Gary Holt loves the whammy bar and he loves uh bending, you know, notes. And right, so right. when you listen to his version of you can almost immediately pick out the Gary Holt solos versus the Lee Alta solos. And, but, but both of them are play off of each other really nicely. And they do some like harmonizing stuff too on the album, which is really kind of cool. But I like bands where the two guitar players have really distinct styles because you can, you can just hear the difference in how they approach it. And for Gary Holt, the thing that I love most about him is his approach is just all energy. Like his solos right. are like just what we're all about Slayer energy. solos. Yeah, and and the funny thing is, I've seen him play with Slayer a few times now, and I think he brings such a great element to that band because even when he's playing Hanum and stuff, um, you know, and those Slayer solos are nothing to write home about, but he attacks them, and he, and just the way he holds his guitar and the way he emphasizes notes, uh, I just he just brings such a great energy to the way he plays, and you can totally hear that in the way he plays solos and in the crunch of the riffs that they play. Uh, right. And then the pick slide, there's a billion pick slides on this album too, which is another thing I love. Yeah, um, I do like those. Um, the uh, Lee Altus, by the way, one of the many bands that he's been in, apparently was Decrups, uh, which kind of makes sense, actually. Once I found, I found that out after listening to the album a few times when I was looking stuff up, and I was like, huh, okay, that actually does kind of make sense. A, it explains why Decrups were so incredibly heavy. Uh, given that they weren't, you know, a sort of an actual metal band as such. Um, and it also, yeah, explains why on his solos on this album, he doesn't go for the bends and yep. the whammy bars and stuff quite so much. Uh, he is much more sort of, I hesitate to say mechanical, because that sounds like him being derogatory, and I don't mean it in that way, but it is, yeah, it is much more, there's much less bending and sliding and whammying and all that sort of stuff. Um much more emphasis just on straight notes, but a lot of them and played very fast. Yeah, and just uh you mentioned Lee Altus, the the guitar player that a lot of people who listen to Exodus back in the day associate with them is Rick Hunnell, who was uh on their early album. Again, not their first guitarist, but they had a lot of lineup changes earlier in the day, but he was associated with a lot of their early work. But I really like what Lee Altus brings to this band for sure. Yeah. Um and I will also say that this is fantastic workout music. I oh, listened to this dude. album se- several times over the last few weeks uh, at the gym. And and actually, the headphones really, really show off the production as well. I mean, not that you can't hear it just through regular speakers, but stick a pair of good headphones on and listen to this. And, you know, if you are into music production, if you know anything about sort of how mixing and production works, you will be amazed at the quality of the mixing on this. It really is that good. And people, I, I can't remember in one of the videos, people were, were asking us, like, how do you listen to albums? And, and you know, I listen to them as many different ways as I can. Right, all I'll listen of the to above, yeah. All of the above. But I love, uh, and Torin mentioned a great driving album. I love being in the car and knowing that I'm going to be in the car for a period of time where I can listen to an entire album. And then I just crank it and I roll up the windows and I let the sound fill the space. 
And if you could do this at home, but you have a great stereo system or whatever, but I love albums that fill every bit of space sonically. And this is one of those, whether it's your headphones or your car or a gigantic room, like it's just such a, a thick production from top to bottom, which is really, yeah. it's just a blast to listen to just from that standpoint. All right. Before we, uh, start, I just want to ask you, what do you think is going to be my favorite track on this album? Oh, well, I mean, an easy answer would be BTK because it features Chuck Billy, but I actually feel like, hmm, here's what I hope it is. I hope that it is wrapped in the arms of rage. Uh, Okay. And what was the other one that I really liked? Uh, There's wrapped in the arms of rage and collateral damage. Uh, those are my two favorites there, but I, of those two, I think wrapped in the arms of rage might be a song that you really click to. All right. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to it. Yeah. I just wanted to, because this is such a sort of you album, uh, I thought it'd be interesting to see what you, you know, if I could surprise you. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure you will. All right. So let's get into the album then and opens with track one, black 13. Yeah, which features an intro by a guy called Dan the Automator, who is like Mm. a producer. I guess he's somebody that they had a a decent relationship with, and he sort of mixed this almost sort of hip-hoppy intro to Black 13. And what's interesting about this is that that intro is part of the overall song, whereas I think on most albums you would see that be the lead-in track that lasts a minute, and then it kicks over to track one. But no, this is this is properly part of that song yeah uh dan the automator is um he's a hip-hop producer mostly um but i think he i think he's from the bay area or maybe Uh he lives there now so uh, yeah it, it it i guess that yes they must know him um i must admit uh and this is kind of you know a credit to the band really that i at first didn't realize that it was the intro because the track just says featuring Dan the Automator, uh-huh. and I thought, oh, maybe he plays guitar as well, right. and that you know maybe he'd done a bit of guitar work on this or something, um, and that the intro was just a cool intro that they'd come up with. I didn't realize until later that yeah, actually, that's his part of the song is the sort of semi-industrial intro that uses the riff from the main oh. song. So as you say, it segues into the song. It's not like it's a a completely separate part that sounds nothing like the rest of the album, which I think is why it took me a while to realize that's what it was. And it's really good because it has that yes, bit of hip hop feel to it. But my favorite part is, you know, you hear the, 
the sort of whammy note and then the just chug descending into the actual main riff <laughs> of the song. And it's like, it just works so well. And, and it's on an Exodus album. Like that's, that <laughs> is what got me really excited about that. Like Megadeth wouldn't do that. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is what would, I would what, they not? I don't think so, man. Like I, what I really like about this album is that a, it is so Bay area thrash. Like, man, if you go and listen to those early days of thrash metal, like there's a distinct sound in my mind that uh, differentiates Bay Area thrash from like the the New the New York, uh, New Jersey right. thrash scene. So when we talk about Overkill, you talk about, um, you know, Anthrax and stuff like that. Um, there's just something about it. And what I also like about it is the culture of that time was that all these bands you saw with the lineup changes, all of them had lineup changes. So many of the people that we associate with one band now uh, started in one of these other bands or played, you know, Carrie King played in Megadeth for a little while. And there, you know, Mustaine was in Metallica and Kirk Hammett was in Exodus. And, and there's, there was so much of that, like guys going from band to band to band, the trading of the tapes from the live shows, this, this culture of like, they were all in this sort of thing together. And as you see with the different collaborations on this album, like there's just so many cool team ups and things that you would never even think of. And I think what a great way to open the album then, you know, you would expect this album to open with a riff, with just right. punch, riff, riff, drums, riff, drums, riff, drums right in your face, right out of the get go. And that's not how they open at all, but they lead you into it in a way that when it clicks in. It right, just, when the riff does drop it, oh, and it's a really sort of Marshall-type riff as well, and it really does hammer you. It does, and the other thing, too, is like a lot of these sort of lead-in intros that you hear on these albums, they suck, right? <laughs> and you're just like, they really do, where you're just like, why are we, just get to it already, you know? Right, and, right. Um, <laughs> you know, But this is like, this. I think this was actually their walk-on music when, they, when I saw them play live, and it's just, it's oh, just a great- Oh, that would make sense, yeah. It's a great build-up. Not to mention the, the way that it's produced is like, it has this very sort of tinnitus feel to it, where you're getting the high-frequency- you know, uh, feedback. Oh yeah. It and sounds almost like you're is, listening to it on a, on an FM radio or something at first. Yeah. Yeah. And a bass that is sort of capping out, you know what I mean? So it's like, it, you're getting almost that static, uh, which is really, really cool. Yeah. It's, uh, and the song itself is, you know, it's a good song. Uh, not my favorite on the album. Um, but it's, it's a good song and it's, you know, as we've said so many times, it's one of those, it really does set the stage for the rest of the album to come. You know, you, you listen to this song and you're like, okay, this is a thrash metal album. And, and it is very, yes, it's a very classic sort of thrash drum line, a very speedy riff. Yep. But again, what you notice about uh, Gary Holt's riff writing is he, to me, uses a lot more sort of individual notes than just chord, um, chord based riffs. You know what I mean? Like he, so, mm -hmm. so there's a complexity to, to the riff, although it's, it's a fairly simple, riff within that um super heavy lots of pick slides one of the things that you notice that they do several times on this album is they're very good at resetting after a break or after a solo and it usually features you know tom hunting kind of barreling down the drum set and then yeah. <laughs> they kick back into the main riff and and i like that especially for an album that can go to many different riffs within a song, they always bring you back 
so that you are locked back in by the time that they finish the song, which I really, I really kind of love about that. Um, this song, yeah, the, the bridges, uh, the middle eights really are all, I mean, not all of them come in the middle, um, but they are all, I can't think of any song on this album where the album, where the song changes completely and the middle eight becomes the rest of the song. And that's how it ends. It always, as you say, returns back to the main riff, which is despite the fact that some of the structure of these songs is not traditional. Right. Uh, I mean, most of it is fairly traditional thrash. Some of it isn't, but it all has that traditional sense of here's the main riff now we'll play a bunch of other stuff and now here's the main riff again just to remind you right and when about three minutes and 15 seconds in when they go back to that opening riff the time changes again you know so you go from this sort of grindy sort of slow riff to this super fast thrashy riff so great contrast in the song um you know the the lyrics you can't renege you pay the vig you're spoken for it's about sort of selling your soul kind of stuff and and um you know trying to get out of the deal that you made with the devil is what i took out of the lyrics of that song um yeah i mean i know that the number 13 on a roulette wheel is black um but beyond that you know i'm not aware that black 13 is a particularly bad bet to make on right. a roulette wheel or something. It's I think funny. It's I researched just, the same thing. I couldn't find anything either. Yeah. I was like, cause I mean, uh, you know, I don't know a lot about roulette, but I know enough to know, okay, well yeah, 13's black, but I'm like, and I was thinking, is that, I can't think of any special significance. And I looked it up and I couldn't find any. I think it's just the fact that it's black and it's the number 13. <laughs> well, and uh, you've got the trade-off solo here. Gary goes first, Lee goes second. Um, the way the song ends where Sousa kind of screams and then you get this sort of descending and then frantic, um, you know, up and down on the neck as it, as it sort of drives home. And then you get the sort of snare drum that drives home the, the final riff one more time. Like it, it just has a great heavy pounding ending to the song yeah. and it just yeah, sort yeah, of, the, and then the, it stops. Right. The ending has an impact. Uh, and it does have a proper ending rather than fading, yeah, which is you know always a good thing in my book. Right, and they do do the fade a couple times, but I think where they use it um, is pretty cool. But we'll talk about that when we get to it. But you you literally have about one half of one second to take a deep breath before song number two kicks in. Right, right. In fact, if they just put a quick Tom Hunting fill in there, you'd never know that you were starting a second song. <laughs> well, because it actually starts with him going across the drum set again. I mean, here's my notes for every song. Killer riff, killer riff, killer riff. Drums are amazing. Killer riff. Drums (laughs) are amazing. That's pretty much all of my notes as well, actually, yeah. (laughs) Drums are perfect. Sick riff. Holy crap. That's riff is amazing too. Like that's, I I try to think about different things to say about each song, but what I, what I love about 
the way that the riff for blood in blood out is played first of all the pace takes it up a notch this is a this is a thrash metal song a 3 minute and 42 second punch yeah, yeah. you in the face get in the pit which is what this whole song is about getting in the pit letting it all hang out um you know it's back- also a full on you know we're the originals you fuckers song as well there's a lot of stuff in here about like you know we've been here from the start you better respect us well in great tribute to paul bailoff uh yes. here's here's a snippet bring your anger bring the mayhem anything you do is allowed you're the kings of pit insanity Tonight, we're going to rage and make Paul Bailoff proud. And when he sings that, he just hits it, you know, super high, which, A, here's a singer of the band paying respect to a former singer of the band. Uh, To the the, guy he replaced. To the guy he replaced. But this whole song is a nod to the roots of thrash, the people who are there in the beginning, what it's all about, getting in the pit. Um, so on one hand, you could certainly look at the lyrics and say, yeah, they're kind of cheesy because this is just a, this is a slam dance song if I've ever heard one, but it is, the riff is brutal. And this is, I think the first song where you can hear the very unique tone that Gary Holt and Lee Altus, the, the tone of the Exodus guitar sound is perfectly evidenced in this song. It is like I think of certain bands and I think of certain guitar players where their tone is just I don't know how they do it, but there's something about it that speaks to me and Exodus is one of those bands and just this it's like a double chug and then he slides right into the riff and the way they play this riff is the first 3 times it's uh played very distinctly and then the fourth time they slide between each of the chord changes yes, and yeah. it's so effing good like what a way to drive home the final you know bar of that it's it, like that's one of those jump out of your seat like throw your fist in the air sort of things like and <laughs> and it's so fast and uh it's just so awesome but yeah so sick riff man that's what i wrote for every like every note on this whole album but uh yeah. well and for this song i just got really fast and thrashy proper old school oh so old school oh, and then the- and Twin guitar attack solos. <laughs> oh, not only that, but the second verse literally rolls right out of the chorus. Like yeah, they don't yeah, even yeah. give you time to reset and bam, they're hitting you again. Right. And- there's no empty bar. You often get uh, after choruses, you'll often get an empty two bars of the riff playing again and then the vocals start But for the second verse. But yeah, here, no, bang, straight. And doesn't it go straight from the verse to the chorus as well? Yes. There's basically just no gap. And and the way that it goes from the verse into the chorus is like this freaking insane drum roll by hunting that crashes with the cymbals at the end of it. So it's like, it's just this hundred mile an hour chanting, you know, head banging, moshing tune. <laughs> uh, and then at a minute and 35, you get a riff change. And again, it's freaking insane. Um, and that's again, like the, the, such a part of these or you know that thrash sound is is sort of what i always used to call the mosh part especially when i listen to anthrax i'm like oh this is the mosh part where uh where everybody's supposed to get in a circle pit and go crazy um that riff change at 135 is so freaking good the solo actually sounds very classic as well so you know just that um just kind of what you'd expect about an early 80s thrash 
or even like listening to early Metallica solos and stuff like that, or even early Mustaine solos, like this fits right in the vein of this sounds like an early eighties guitar solo. Yeah. The the whole song really is very old school, but yeah, played with sort of modern production and techniques and it really shows. And, and that, so yeah, I mean, there's not really much more to say about blood in blood out, except it's a, it's a great title track. It's a great, old school thrash song. You can sort of put this in front of anybody. And if they enjoy thrash metal music, their head is going to start banging to this song. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it leads straight into, uh, track three collateral damage. just talked about the guitar tone of exodus the other thing that i love about exodus is these razor blade riffs like this is like a it's just a razor it it just cuts the way he plays this opening to this song is just insane and then turns that original group of notes into a riff like, I don't even right. know how to better explain other than just that. <laughs> it, 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 it just sounds like razor blades. Like, it sounds like his fingers are shredding apart as he plays this um, this opening to the song. And then the drums kick in and the bass kicks in. And now we've just made a riff about that. Um, I do love the intro on this track. Uh, and yeah, my notes are, you know, sort of fast and thrashy again. Incredible riffing and drums. Because you're you're right, it, when, it, the, when the intro kicks into the riff... It just, it's another, you know, once again, 100 miles an hour, just bang, straight in your face. Um, this is, you you called it actually, this is my favorite track on the album. It's got a little testament in it. Maybe that's why, I don't know. It's uh, one of my favorite things about this track uh, is actually sort of one of the more unusual bits, which is at the end of the chorus when he does the belligerent, resilient bit, because that's really odd. Uh, and, you know, sort of the time jumps around a bit and the sort of the cadence of his voice uh-huh. changes compared to the rest of the chorus. And I don't know, it's just, uh, it's a little unusual and I really like it. And of course then it builds up into the, the final sort of screamed line of the chorus. Um, yeah, it's, I think really the bridge fast. is where the riff reminds me of Testament a little bit. Cause it's uh, not maybe. that razor blade thing. It's that, you know, where it's sort of, uh, it has this sort of descending. It's just awesome. It's just it just builds well, right into the. And one of the things I like about the uh, the end of the middle eight is this sort of it has a kind of chaotic thrashing end to it, where 
the drums and the guitars are all kind of again it's it's off rhythm slightly um and yeah just really grabs me uh i must admit i hadn't made the testament comparison but yeah i I can kind of see it but yeah this the speed and aggression and some odd chord changes as well which is always nice um combined with yeah hunting's drums uh just yeah i really really like this track just the double bass emphasis that he gives on parts of the riffs like just it's so like I don't want to say it's subtle because I don't think there's a lot of subtlety in in, in it, but <laughs> it's just like it's never over the top. It's always in service to the song. Like he to me, like their rhythm section is so tight that they're just creating a sonic foundation for the riffs to just bounce right off of. And it and it, and that's what I love about. It. That's why I wish I could listen to just the rhythm section sometimes because like. When you talk about, and and I think I read an interview with Tom Hunting where he was talking about, you know, building a song is like building the perfect sandwich, um, but <laughs> and how he loves it, how he loves that process of like building I, a song. I but, did see a thing where, yeah, he said that he actually loves, which is in contrast, I think, to a lot of drummers. He actually loves being in the studio and using that time to sort of try things out and build the song from all the different parts. And he, and I think that. Again, like like how you mentioned, like this is a good version of Megadeth, but I feel like that that approach leads to these songs that just they're so layered, but they just feel like they fit together so well. But this this song is uh is just absolutely brutal. And the solo kind of starts off really chaotic, but I think it really comes together because again, you have some sort of harmonizing, you know, going on where they're they're playing um almost like the bridge riff over and over again as they finish up the solo uh just from start to finish a a great tune and evokes a very sort of dark and rebellious mood um i would say so yeah and you know maybe again then maybe that's part of why i like it but yeah definitely um i mean not to say that the rest of the album just goes immediately downhill after that but that for me is the high point of the album yeah, absolutely awesome. Uh solos, uh Gary plays the first part of the solo, Lee plays the second part of the solo. Um really really good. And my favorite part vocally is when he says, "This is my declaration of war." And he screams. Yes. <laughs> and you know, and they're talking fight, oppress. I love when they do the chanting sort of uh vocal refrains over his vocals and over the riff as well. It's just like um Right, which they did on Blood In, Blood Out on the track before as well. Yeah, but this one, I think it works even better. Like that, just the, you know, the two words that are inserted after every line that he sings, you know, sort of in the chorus. And then when he builds up to the end of this, where he's saying collateral damage repaid and he screams it at the end, just the, the repeating of sort of the opening of the song of that sort of descending note opening riff is just like brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Just killer. It's, it's- it really is a, a great song. Um, and then uh, the next song, track four, is Salt the Wound. Yeah, Salt the Wound featuring Kirk Hammett. <laughs> Reducing to your fate Get 
featuring Mr. Hammett. Uh, as we talked about before, Kirk Hammett, one of the original members of Exodus, who then left to go to Metallica, um, they had taken a song that he had helped write and put it on, I want to say, Temple of the Damned. Um, but there's a lot of people who forget that Kirk Hammett was even part of Exodus ever. Um, but it was cool to see him come back. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about there being this sort of camaraderie and community and sort of team ups happening throughout the album. And so he does the solo on this album and you can definitely pick out the fact that in fact, he does oh, the yeah. front. They say that he does the solo, but I think it's, it's a split solo between him and Gary. Um, but certainly Kirk Hammett's piece of it. You can absolutely tell that it's I was going to say if, if that's the case, then his is definitely the first oh, without a doubt, yes. part of the solo, yeah. Um, the whole, uh, again, once again, my notes for this say old school. Uh, it is kind of an old school riff, and... I was going to say, I don't know if Hammer had any involvement in writing the rest of the song, or if this is why they asked him to do a solo on this particular track, but the the main riff of this song really sounds like old Metallica to me. And by old, I don't mean Justice. I'm talking like Kill 'Em All era Metallica. Really right. reminded me of that very early era of Metallica. So yeah, whether that's because of Kirk, or whether that's why they called Kirk to come in on this song. I don't know. But then you're right. As soon as the solo kicks in, you're like, ah, there's a war pedal. Hello, Kirk. (laughs) Yeah. But the cool thing too about this song is that it's not so much, uh, in terms of rhythm, it's not so much a snare driven rhythm as more of a Tom and bass drum, uh, sort of rhythm. It has this sort of open, uh, bottom to it, which I think is really kind of cool because the riff itself is very sort of simple. Um, and very early thrashy, as you mentioned, just sort of really the, the sort of jump. And it's a killer riff as well, by yeah. the way. I'm not knocking it when I say that. Right. I think it's a great riff. But but as opposed to like the the riff on the song before it with collateral damage, it's not it's not inherently a like crunching heavy riff. It's that sort of more technical uh, sort of speed metal sort of riff. But I think the heaviness comes from the way the drums envelop it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. which is really kind of cool. And then Kirk Hammett gets a solo in there. Uh, it's it's just a solid straight ahead. It's a Kirk Hammett cruncher. solo. Yeah. I mean, you know, the minute you hear it, you're like, oh, it's a Kirk Hammett solo. It just, it's amazing, really, how, and I'm sure it can't be an accident, you know, but it's amazing how even if I didn't know that, you know, even if I hadn't read the featuring Kirk Hammett bit on the title of this song, I would listen to that and go, sounds like Kirk Hammett <laughs> because it just does. <laughs> yeah, it totally does. And you know, here's the thing outside of a Metallica song, I kind of like it more oh. because I, <laughs> and, and here's why, because I feel like in Metallica songs, uh, the solos all sound the same. Like that, that is where I struggle with Kirk Hammett is that there are elements of his soloing that sound very, very similar to me in every single solo that he plays here in an Exodus song. I feel like the backdrop that it's against helps the solo just stand out more. I, I, well, I really like it. And also the fact that it, it's the only solo he plays on the album, so none of the other solos on the album sound like him. And the funny thing is, though, not out of place with Gary's playing, right? Like a, a good compliment. Oh, like all, no. like no. the first thing I thought was, boy, I'd like these guys to play together a little <laughs> bit more. You know what I mean? Like that. that's uh, 
but I feel like Gary kind of plays well off of uh, of whoever, as evidenced, you know, in Slayer as well. But yeah, the solo does not sound out of place at all. It fits perfectly with this song. I think they picked a good song for him to solo on, um, and it all just really kind of works. Yeah, it really does. Um, and moving on, then track five is Body Harvest. <laughs> said at the top that you you thought this was the other one that uh might possibly be a favorite of mine and i do i would say if collateral damage wasn't on this album this probably would be my favorite instead i really like this and turns out that this is the one written by the drummer and bassist yes written uh, by altus gibson and souza yeah and doesn't it show <laughs> yeah absolutely sh- you know can't you tell um i do love the opening blast on this but the whole track is really really rhythm and percussion driven uh in a good way yeah and you really i mean you can hear it clear as day on the album but if you go and watch that video um that we link to in the show notes like you can see just how awesome the drums and bass are working together in in a in sort of an off kilter um, and they do this a few times on the album. Some of their riffs are meant to be almost disturbing in the way that they hit you. And uh, this one is just sort of this off kilter riff to begin with. That's like super heavy and super fast, but in a, in a slower tempo overall package, you know what I mean? Cause those drums are yeah. blasting. Um, and you could see with the bass too, there's like, there's a lot of notes that are blasting out in each little bit of this riff. Um but yeah, Body Harvest, great tune uh, about someone's organs being harvested. And right. over the course of the song, you have someone who, it's the whole like waking up in the bathtub and finding out that, you know, some of your organs have been taken. But as the song gets into its last verse, it is the victim of the first verse who is now going after another victim to get body parts from them to put in himself. Uh, it says, awake in a room dripping with blood, the hunted has turned to the hunt. Attention is turning from me unto you. You have the parts that I want. And so it's like this person who wakes up in a panic, you know, thinking that they're dying in a bathtub because some of their organs have been taken to becoming the hunter and and taking them from somebody else as the song ends. So um, kind of B-horror movie-esque, but I thought it, that was pretty it, cool. It really is. I mean, uh, like I say, I do like this song, and but I wasn't paying that much attention to the lyrics. And before I read the lyrics, I just assumed that the title was going to be 
shall we say, a little more metaphorical. Uh, <laughs> and right. then I read the, read the lyrics and I'm like, oh no, no, it really is. This is hostile. Okay. Right. You're thinking like, oh, this must be some political statement that they're, oh no, no, no. It's just, yeah, the, no, the, it's, it's taken directly from a B-horror movie. Yeah, absolutely. I, this is a I song love... where they have that harmonizing in the dual solo attack. Yes. That works yes. really and, well. And a surprisingly not mega fast solo, quite restrained solo, actually, given you know, given the rest of the music and given the other solos on the album, um, you know, initially it actually starts out quite, yeah, quite sort of tuneful and restrained. I thought it was quite nice. But what I really love on this, I mean, the middle eight is good. It's quite gent, actually, the middle eight. Um, but I really love the chorus, riff and rhythm because it's quite unusual. It's the sort of rhythm that you would normally expect in the pre-chorus bridge right. rather than the chorus itself. Um which is just unusual, and it means that the chorus feels like it's building to something. And, of course, what it builds to most of the time is, you know, back into the regular riff. So it it is kind of like slightly off-kilter, slightly disturbing. You know, it doesn't fit uh, what you might expect in terms of structure just because of the sound of that chorus and sort of might catch you off guard a bit, which, you know, I, I really like that in songs. I think people have figured that out about me now. Um yeah quite unusual and just sort of made me go huh okay that's you know not heard that before um and also yeah just a really really heavy song well and and that solo i think this might be my favorite solo on the album because not only do you get the trade-off not only do you get the harmonizing but then when they come out of that solo and they're leading back into sort of the reset you have this crushing version of the main riff where the the he's hunting is just wailing on the drums and the and the bass is just spaced apart so perfectly that it's just like this driving that riff home like a train and then they reset and then they go into you know the final verse just really really and they do that again at the end of the song where it's just it's just this descending you know great finish to the song really really good yeah Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, again, yeah, the whole song, you can, you can tell that it's written by the rhythm section, basically. Um, it really shows, but like I said, in a good way. And I mean, from my perspective, let's not forget my favorite Anthrax album is the one where the drummer wrote all the music. So right. <laughs> maybe this says something about me, but yeah, as a result, I really liked this track. Um, uh, and the next track, track six is BTK featuring Chuck Billy. Filler of the community Leader in the house of the Lord Wichita, killer of the Eucharist Watch only for another reward That's right, sis, underway The time for killing is right In the shadow of Kahootan A family life, basic blood They will be brought up by Hades in the 
another sort of almost like a razor blade opening to the riff, but then gets into a very sort of traditional sort of chugging, uh, very bass driven, very drum driven. It does. Yeah. Riff. Yeah. It's a fairly traditional riff. I would say that. Yeah. Um, now, first of all, much like with the Kirk Hammett solo, I wonder, did they know that Chuck was joining them and so wrote a song that sounds like Testament? Or did they write a song, say, that sounds a bit like Testament. Let's give Chuck a call. You Um, know, the story (laughs) is out there. I think it actually, the story is out there. And I I want to say, although I didn't read it before we recorded that, um, that he was around the studio and they decided to bring him in to put some emphasis on this song. So I don't know that they wrote it for him. I could be wrong about that, but I want to say that he was around the studio and they kind of said, you should come in and do some, um, some vocals on this tune, but I think he adds just the right amount of darkness to a song that is about a serial killer. Right. I disagree. Oh, I, I think that they criminally underutilize him on this track. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's just because I feel a little bit cheated. Like, I was promised a track featuring <laughs> Chuck Billy, and what I get instead is a track where Chuck Billy can just about be heard in the background, you know, at the start of the chorus, at the end of the chorus, and then in the middle eight. Um, that's not what I was expecting, and I, I feel a little bit cheated, frankly, because I would quite like to hear... Uh, an actual song featuring Chuck Billy with this music and with these musicians, because clearly, and you know, these guys have obviously known one another for decades. They work really well together um, from what little of him you can hear in this song anyway. Yeah. The closest that you get is towards the end of the song where he's really kicking it into high gear with, uh, you know, with the, with the growling roar. Um, And which I think at that point, you're right. I certainly would like to hear more of it because I think at that point you have, uh, Sousa, who is is very sort of high on the scale, and then you have you know him uh, Chuck, who is really doing his lovely low growl, yeah. which just works really nice together. Like that, you're right. It would have been nice to hear more of that throughout the song, but I feel like this this song is sort of a uh, a slower tempo, plotting, sinister song about a serial killer and him. The emphasis that he does provide is just like the depths of evil, especially with how this song ends. Right. right. Um, I mean, yeah, I could, I could absolutely, if this musically, if this song appeared on the next Testament album with Chuck singing all of these lyrics, I wouldn't blink. It really does sound like a classic modern style Testament song and his voice would suit it brilliantly. And lyrically, actually, I think it's a really good song. Um, it's just, yeah, I just say, I just, I just feel a bit cheated. <laughs> and for those people who don't know, uh, the BTK killer was uh, a guy by the name of Dennis Rader who murdered a bunch of people in the late seventies, all the way up till the early nineties. He was known as the BTK killer, which stands for bind, torture and kill. Um, and there's a part of the song where they talk about, and I wrote down the lyric, um, Done in by a computer disc, demon banished by technology. So this guy who was the serial killer was writing notes to the police, and he ended up uh, writing a note on a floppy disk, and they were able to go into the metadata of the document on the floppy disk and find out who it was. And that's how Ah. he ended up getting caught. Um, And I'll just read that part really quickly. Um... 
Did I put that in the notes? I might have put it in the notes. Oh, in his letters to the police, Raider asked of his writings, if put on a floppy disk, he asked this of the police, uh, if put on a floppy disk could be traced or not. The police answered his question in a newspaper ad posted in the Wichita Eagle saying it would be safe to use the disk. (laughs) Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Go ahead. (laughs) So he sent a... Uh, Memorex floppy disk to Fox TV affiliate KSAS enclosed uh, a bunch of other stuff. Police found metadata embedded in a deleted Microsoft Word document that was unbeknownst to Raider on the floppy disk. The metadata contained Christ Lutheran Church, and the document was marked as last modified by Dennis. Wow. So they were able to track him down uh, and arrest him due to the metadata on that document. So uh, clearly, in writing a song about this killer, they kind of told his story through this particular song, um, yeah. which made it more interesting to me because overall, you know, as much as I said that I liked uh, Chuck Billy's emphasis on this song, this might be – I don't feel like there's any throwaway songs on this album, but this is not one of my favorite songs on the album. This is this would be um, on the lower end in terms of what what I like about this album. So I like uh, it for the story it tells. I'm glad you're right. First of all, I want to say Memorex. There's a name I haven't heard in I know, a long, right? long time. <laughs> um, but I'm glad you said that because I kind of divide this album into a sort of top half and bottom half. And I don't mean chronologically. I mean, in terms of, you know, quality of songs. And yeah, I'd agree with you. I don't think any of the songs in this album necessarily are filler, but there are some that, yeah, kind of fall in the bottom half. And this is, this is definitely one of them. Um, despite chuck billy maybe because of the lack of chuck billy who knows but (laughs) but uh yeah this definitely falls in the bottom half of the album for me unlike track seven wrapped in the arms of rage Track seven, wrapped in the arms of rage. I got that a little bit confused with collateral damage. There was a couple things I said about collateral damage that I meant about this song, which, oh, okay. which, uh, as I look back at it, this is my favorite song on the album. Um, this is the one that has that sort of, uh, despair tinged riff as, and I noted it down here, but it's so freaking heavy. Um, I think this, that's re- that's really interesting. Okay, uh, the 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 intro the the riff that we hear at the start here is also the chorus riff. Um, you know, the verse riff is nothing to write home about. It's just a fairly standard sort of thrashy verse riff. But the chorus riff uh, is is really good. But it reminds me of 
Death, who I mentioned earlier, it is a very, very Chuck Schuldiner-like riff. And I mean that as a compliment because I really, really like Death. Um, so for you to say that, okay, we... Because we haven't done Death yet no, we on haven't. this show. Um, I, I may bump them up the list. Oh, they're, they're okay. On my, they're, they're on my list, but I may bump them up the list uh, so that we do them sooner rather than later then. Because I have a feeling if this is your favourite track on the album, I have a feeling that you may well very much like uh, a couple of the sort of middle era progressive death um, era of Death the Band. I love about this. I, well, first of all, I can't wait because I really don't have an opinion one way or the other of death. I don't, I couldn't even tell you a song off the top of my head that I, right, right. that, that I've probably heard from them. Um, what I love about this riff is that it's part sort of these uh, individual notes. And then there's this chugging building part of the rift. Like it gets more frantic as it goes on. And right. I just feel like that plays off of itself so well. Um, this is another one of those riffs that I feel like is just like perfectly put together. And then of course you get to about a minute and 50 seconds in the song. And then this is where it goes into the junk drawer and pulls out another, another riff that could anchor its own song. You know, like I, in listening to the song, the first two minutes, I'm like, this song is already a classic in my mind. I already love it. And then we hit this riff and I'm like, as if this song could get any better, he doubles (laughs) down and gives you this just absolutely sick riff and again you've got that drums and bass that perfectly accent it where they they throw in a little drums and a little bass a little drums and a little bass and then everything kicks in and the whole riff is just driving along like so freaking good um there's absolutely no time wasted as well getting to the middle eight and solos like you literally have one verse one chorus bang off we go solo and this is where there's some great sort of harmonizing done in the solos here where they each get sort of their own time to shine. And then um, just just really nice sort of they're playing the individual notes of the riff together in the solo, which is really kind of cool. Um, the Just a couple of the lyrics here. Uh, Divinity of death divine. Mercy withers on the vine. Pulse rushes. I'm set free from my cage. I no longer walk alone. Make her animosity my own. Crushing, crushing embrace. I'm wrapped in the arms of rage. Uh, this uh, this song actually made me think of Thanos, uh, who's <laughs> it, it, in his infatuation with death. You know what I mean, like that, because yeah. it's really like just like somebody giving over to those, um, to the urges. to those urges and those impulses. And uh, that's all I could picture in my head was Thanos and and death. Um, during what the heck was the event? Oh, the Infinity Gauntlet. That's what that's, that's it, yeah. what I kept thinking of, like during that. Uh, so now it made me want to go back and read that again. So, uh, but yeah, what a great tune! And this is at number seven, right? You know, again, this is the part of the album where so many albums, so that many we talk albums about, sag. Yeah. They're sagging, and you get and and it's such a great um, song to come out of BTK, which was more of a plotting, you know, sort of song. And then you get this one, which has a little bit more of a, almost like a, like a soaring despair. You know what I mean? Like, it's just more right. <laughs> open. It's just more of an open feel to it, but uh, really, really good. And I really like Sousa's vocal work on this song. I feel like he gets, uh, you know, he gets a chance to really let loose when he's singing, I'm wrapped in the arms of rage. But I also feel like the openness of the first part of that riff lets his vocals stand out because the guitars aren't over you know they're they're not washing it out you know what i mean um right 
They're really, really good. Love that song. Probably my favorite song. That song and Collateral Damage, which uh, I got a little bit confused, are the t- my two favorites on the album. All right, well, and then track eight is My Last Nerve. I don't dislike it. Like There are some parts of this track that I really like. I like the chorus chords. I like the sort of wailing lead guitar that runs over the chorus chords. Uh, and the middle eight, I think, is is really good as well. Um, but I... It's just... It's kind of a little samey. I think by this point, this this is where the album sags a little for me because this track and the next track just kind of... Nothing about them leaps out at me. You know, there are bits I can find that I like, but nothing about them grabs me by the throat, which I think is a shame because up until now, it's all been, you know, like some tracks more than others, but they've all been quality. Yeah. Um, my notes on this was it's a solid song that gets amazing at about 250 when they bring in another killer riff. Um, but the, the, the basic elements of the song itself, I think it's a solid song. It's not one that really jumped out at me, but I like this sort of sinister opening riff. I like sort of the pulsing bass. Um, again, I made a note here that there's something disturbing about the way that Gary Holt writes his riffs. They just, um, <laughs> and again, the song is about being on my last nerve and it has that sort of almost, you know, there's something about it. That's, that's almost a little bit off putting, not in a musical way, but just in the, in the emotion that the, the riff sort of brings out. So I really like that. I liked, uh, Tom Hunting's, drums on this one specifically when he when he's doing that you know the little ting on the cymbal i think he does that so well and he doesn't overuse it um but he does it just to emphasize here and there just really well done yeah as i say it's you know it's not bad at all but there was yeah very little about that that really sort of leapt out at me and as i said unfortunately i kind of felt the same way about the next track which track nine numb Because I'm failing 
Oh, see, now I love this song because this is a song to me that the main riff is very, uh, almost like almost like a vertigo to it. You know what I mean? Just this this sort of um, mentally unstable feeling to the way that this riff sort of plays. What? It's got an odd timing as well. It's a kind of, it's one of those riffs where it goes on for, like the first time they play it, it plays for five bars, and then the next time it plays for four bars, and it alternates throughout the the whole song in that way. Right. Which is, uh, you know, sort of a a little odd, takes a while to, to get used to. This is the track that, I would say actually on the whole album, this is the track that sounds the most modern to me. Like musically, this could be a Silosis track. Or somebody. Well, um, and it's definitely not a traditional sort of thrash riff because even the choice no, of notes no. in the riff are like it's like very like I said, it's very sort of like unstable and almost has like a vertigo feel to it. Just the it's just a weird a weird choice for a main riff. It is odd, yeah. And it is kind of virtuoso, but yeah, in a sort of weird way. Um uh the middle eight as well sounds really modern. It's got like again an almost gent like start to it, and then it goes into some really off key chord progressions. And Sousa's vocals actually do improve uh briefly <laughs> on this song. Well, and just when he uh, when Because he goes deeper. Yeah, and when he screams so fucking numb, like and then they play the main riff over him singing that, it does have that whole like they definitely capture the feel of what I think they're going for in the song, which is like someone who is so has just been so desensitized by the craziness in the world today that they don't feel anything anymore. And they feel like they've just sort of lost any, any grounding whatsoever. And I, I feel like this song really captures that. So even if it's not as, you know, technically impressive, or it doesn't have the hooks as some of the other songs do. Like this song does, I think what it set what it sets out to do, which is to make you feel like this is a person who's sort of losing their grip. No, I think technically it's very impressive. Uh, I just think from basically, if I hadn't made notes on it, and you asked me to recall anything at all about this track, I don't think I'd be able to. Um, and like I say, it's not a bad track. It's just you know, almost nothing about it stood out to me, which is a shame. Right. Um, uh, and then track 10 is a track written uh, by uh, the other guitarist. Actually, yeah, Lealtus. Yeah. By Lealtus, yeah, uh, called Honor Killings. <laughs>
Yes. And for those who don't know what an honor killing is, uh, it is the homicide of a member of a family by other members of that family due to the perpetrator's belief that the victim has brought shame or dishonor upon the family. Right. And it should be pointed out that the vast, vast majority of honor killings are, uh, you know, murders of women. Yep. Not all, not 100%, but like 99%. Yeah, there was actually an article. I was, you know, obviously researching this a little bit off of the subject matter of this particular song, but there was an article in the Washington Post as of 2014 that there were 1,000 women a year in Pakistan that were murdered in honor killings as of 2014. So, yeah, absolutely. It's a problem here in the UK as well. There are, you know, quite a few incidents here in the UK every year uh, because we have such a large South Asian population um, where, and now this is where, let's, okay, let's talk about the music first before we get onto the lyrical content. Sure. Musically, I think this is, uh, great. This is actually oh. a really, I, I wish Lealtis wrote more music actually, because I think this is one of the best written uh, music musically, one of the best written songs on the album. Totally agree. Um, and the middle eight really reminds me of Decrups. <laughs> Once I knew that, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, actually, I can see that. Um, but the the start of the middle eight on this, the chords remind me of Harvester of Sorrow. Oh, it's I didn't that, even think of that, but now that yeah, you mention it, yeah, it really hmm. reminds me of Harvester because I was I heard it and I was like, that reminds me of something, and then I heard it again and I was like, it reminds me of a Metallica song. It's an early Metallica song. What is it? And I actually had to go back and play through a bunch of Metallica songs, like skipping through. I love iTunes. when you have to do that. I, I, lo- <laughs> and, I love when a and song then I found makes it you and do I was that. Like, oh, it's Harvester of Sorrow, of course. <laughs> it's so funny because the next song that we talk about, there's a Metallica connection that I felt like was there. But uh, now I'm going to go back and listen to those two right next to each other so I can hear that. But you're absolutely right. Like musically, this song is super heavy. Um, again, at about a minute and 50 seconds in, we get another killer riff change, like just b- brutally heavy and really well put together. Um, yeah, it really is. Like I say, musically, it's, I, I think it's almost a shame actually about the lyrics because I think musically, this is one of the standout tracks on the album. Um, but lyrically, I, I get where they're coming from, but it displays a certain level of ignorance about the subject that I think is not, I think doesn't do them any credit. I don't know who wrote the lyrics here, but whoever did, did not do enough research basically. Uh, And I think that's a shame because obviously this is a really, really touchy subject. Yeah. And I think it brings up that whole idea of like when bands try to tackle really controversial subjects in a song right. so socially relevant issues right yeah. like a should they um you know it, it, and uh certainly they have the right to do that and and in a lot of ways um you know bands should be tackling issues that uh that sort of stand out to them but when you try to encapsulate that in a even a six minute song as this one almost is you're gonna have to that's a delicate balance to walk because you only have so much real estate to talk about whatever it is that you're trying to talk about and you have to take a particular angle. And I, if I'm not to put words in your mouth, but if I was to critique their handling of this, it's that it's a pretty superficial and B that it sort of hones in on one particular culture and doesn't, um, doesn't speak to a larger awareness of how honor killings are uh, a part of a lot of different cultures. And, um, in a lot of that different is, parts of the world. 
That is definitely a part of it, yeah. Mm. But there is also, because they make certain generalizations which simply aren't true. Mm. Um, like, okay, obviously, I abhor honor killings. Uh, you know, any right-thinking person would. But they conflate them here entirely with Islam, which is kind right. of ignorant. Yeah. Uh, because that is not the case. Yes, a lot of honor killings take place in Muslim communities, but by no means all. Like Correct. Human Rights Watch and the Council of Europe themselves have both done reports on this and pointing out that, yes, the majority of recorded honor killings in modern times, and that's important, are carried out by Muslims. Um, but no Muslim scholar, nothing in the Quran actually condones death for honor-based offences. I mean, this is like saying that because American serial killers are all Christians, that Christianity is somehow responsible for serial murder, which is an absurd thing to say. But that's kind of the equivalent of what they're saying here. And the practice of honor killings goes back thousands of years across religions and cultures. Um, in like Roman times, there were honor killings for heaven's sakes, you know, and nobody's going to accuse the Romans of being Muslims. Um, and they also then include female genital mutilation in there. Which again, there is nothing in the Quran. Right, they about sort of that. kitchen sink their approach to that, and and yeah. so it comes off as being a song that is anti-Muslim. Which, if that's not giving them the benefit of the doubt, if their if their intention was to shine a light on honor killings and how you know disturbing they are, then they ended up making it about the wrong thing, and right. so they, they did themselves a disservice. Exactly. They've distracted from the main point by right. suddenly like implying that this is an entirely Muslim thing, which it really isn't. In uh, Northern Africa, which is a big like region uh, where honor killings take place, sorry, female genital mutilation going back to where uh, it's really widespread in Northern Africa. And that's Christians. Right. You know, that is mostly Christians who practice that. Uh, and again, yeah, there's nothing in the Bible about female genital mutilation. Of course there isn't. So you can't equate these things with an entire religion because honor killings, female genital mutilation, all of these things, they are so entrenched right. in cultures, not in the root religion, but in a culture that's grown up around the religion. Um, that, yeah, it, as you say, if, yes, shining a light on how terrible honor killings are, absolutely a worthy thing to talk about, but the way they've gone about it distracts from their message because they've literally made errors. Uh, and you know, anybody who doesn't know and is sort of taking the band's word for it is gonna then learn those errors. And, you know, I don't think that that does anybody any good. No. And, and it's, uh, you know, I, it immediately makes me think of how, uh, Christianity is, is spoken about in millions of different songs, um, that have things to say about organized religion. But, you know, that old, um, it, how sexual abuse is associated with the Catholic Church all the time. And so you'll hear that referenced in a lot of different songs as if those two things are sort of, uh, exclusive to one another. Like this is, this right, is the religion right. that that happens in. This is, you know, this is, right. Uh, as if it never happens anywhere correct. else. Yeah. And so you, you often see those types of, which again, I think, in in the best case, it was a well-intentioned discussion of a topic that either didn't go far enough or they didn't have enough real estate to, to take a deeper look at it. Worst is that, as you mentioned, maybe they didn't do their homework or they are um, they're just not well-informed in the topic that they're trying to shine a light on, which goes back to the idea of, well, then should you even be doing it? 
Right, right. And that is a tricky question to answer. And sure. I, I'm not, certainly not going to say that I have the answers, but, you know, I think there are certain things that you, a certain amount of research that you need to do if you're sure. going to talk about socially relevant topics. Right. Um, you know, and I, I think they, they fell down a little there. But putting the lyrics aside, musically, it's an absolute barnstormer. And yeah, one of the best tracks on the album, definitely in that that top half of the album that we spoke of. Right. And it's the second to last song on the album. So, um, and I right. did look for, uh, there wasn't really any articles that talked about, even with the BTK song, sort of the behind the scenes discussion of like what went into this song and, and why did you guys cho- choose to go about this? So I couldn't find any of that on really any of the songs on the album, but I definitely looked for it on this one to see if there was a larger discussion of, of like why they went for this subject matter but um but yeah so as you said musically an amazing song lyrically uh falls short and why it falls short obviously we we may never know yeah 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 uh but then as you say it's the last but one song and then the last song is track 11 food for the worms Which to me is a very sort of heavy, dark riff to end the album on. It's very thrashy. Um, It reminds me at about the one minute mark, the riff reminds me of Orion from Metallica. Oh, really? Yeah. And so that was the Metallica link that I had when I was listening to it. It was, oh, it reminds me, this reminds me a little bit of Orion. Um, Ah. But I I like the structure of this song. I didn't make that connection. I do think, I think it's a good final track. I think it's a really good way to end the intro. And it's really hard to explain why, but there is something about these kinds of intros that I think really suits final tracks. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I wish I could pin down why, because I'd bottle it and be a rich man. But <laughs> there's something about this kind of structure to an opening that just feels like, okay, we're bringing it home now. This is, you know, put your fists in the air. Here we go. We're heading for the end. Uh, and I think it does that really, really well. And then, yeah, bang into really, really fast riff. Uh, and it is kind of insanely fast, this one. Possibly the fastest riff on the album. Um, and just a re- really, really heavy song. Yeah, absolutely. And and lyrically, I mean, they're basically taking a shot at all organized religion on this uh, particular song. Right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just some of the lyrics here, we're vessels for the larvae, not vessels for the soul, transform to liquefaction, make all nature whole, food for the worms. And as he as the song goes out, you know he's he's speaking it and screaming it, speaking it and screaming it, which uh, which I think works 
really well. So this song actually made me give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt on on the previous song is is that maybe it was just well intentioned and, and sort of missed the mark um, because right, clearly right. they're not aiming at any one particular religion um, when they're when they're on this song here. They're kind of taking a shot at all of it. Right. I mean, they say one of the lines is lies fill the Bible, Tanakh and Quran. Right. So it's kind of like, okay, well, come at me. <laughs> and that's the other thing too. And it's, and you know, we talked about how maybe the previous song was a little bit misinformed, but overall lyrically on this album, like there's some impressive lyrics on this album. Um, even the, the cheesy songs that are sort of hearkening back to the days of yore and, and sort of a calling card for thrash metal and stuff like that. Like lyrically, there's, there, there's not a lot of dumb lyrics on this album. Like I like, um, I like the word choice. I like the cadence in a lot of the songs. Uh, some of it you lose in the delivery by Sousa, and you have to go back and sort of see exactly what it was that they were talking about. But I think lyrically overall, there's a lot of good stuff on this album. Yeah, I would agree. I would say lyrically, it's generally a strong album. Uh, there aren't many lyrics that I think are necessarily, you know, sort of call-out classics. Sure. But, but they are certainly a level above a lot of metal albums yes totally <laughs> you know basically they are definitely again in the like the top half of uh you know on this particular album anyway i don't know about the others but in the top half of metal bands for sort of you know good lyrics that aren't just dumb or you know badly written or or badly um formulated that's the other thing you're right the, the delivery you know take it or leave it um but they are clearly written for his voice. Right. And, you know, structured well to go with the music. You know, there is a good cadence and a good uh, rhythm and meter to all of the lyrics on this album. Uh, and, you know, that may sound like sort of technical poetry wankery, but it's important. You know, you are writing songs and it is important. And they do that really, really well. Well, and I'm glad that you said that too, because you, when you think about the other aspects of the album in terms of the musicianship and the engineering and the mixing of the album, like all of that stuff is top notch. So it's good yeah, that yeah. from a lyrical standpoint that that doesn't fall way short of all of the other elements of the album, you know, like top to bottom, it's just a really well put together album. Yeah. It's a tour de force. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I really like the ending of this track as oh, well, me too. Uh, how it, it kind of fades and descends into chaos with the drums rolling and then the drums fade out and you get nothing but like wailing guitars, yes. harmonics, whammy bar, dive bombs. Yep. I mean, the only thing missing really is feedback. I was surprised that there wasn't like a bit of, you know, feedback fading in and out of it. Which when um, you look at the lyrics, like fits perfectly of this whole like decomposing, yeah. this whole song is decomposing. The whole song is yep. sort of descending and, uh, and it is a really great, even though, you know, as we've talked about before, um, the whole fade out ending is not one of your favorites when it's used effectively like it is here. Right, it works right. really well. Yeah, it um, and it goes on for quite a while. It does. It's like a minute. Yeah, <laughs> it starts fading out at like a minute before the end. You're like, really? And it just yeah keeps fading and fading. Um, yeah, I agree. I think it does work well there. There was actually another one. Uh, let me. Oh, it was my last nerve. Actually, uh, I did like how you get the the fret sliding. Oh yes, and the bass uh, phrase that repeats and fades. But then just before it fades completely, it hard cuts into the next track, into Numb. Um, right. Which I, I did like, actually. I thought, uh, I, you know, like we said with Typo last time, if you're going to fade, then 
at least fade into you know a sort of a cut into the next a hard track. Cut, yeah, I, yeah, I think that just has a lot more impact. Yeah, for you know, again, we're talking metal, but I just think that has a lot more impact and sounds better than just fading away into nothingness. One thing I did notice, however, was that thank goodness one thing they didn't do on this album was fade with repeating lyrics. Oh yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Where somebody's like just repeating the chorus line over and over again and then the whole thing fades. I, there's something about that. I don't know what, but something about that sets my teeth on edge. I really hate songs that do that. Oh boy, wait till <laughs> we get into the 80s metal a little bit more. I like, know, they, I know. It's just, that, that's like a staple. Uh, that is an absolute staple of those songs. Uh, so yeah, so that's that's your album. As I mentioned, the uh, there's the bonus track, but this is the, the standard album. Uh, 62 minutes and 14 seconds long. Yep. What this album made me want to do, I mean, I did enjoy it. I really did. And what it makes me want to do is go and find other Exodus albums with the other vocalists. <laughs> I would highly recommend that you listen to the first one, which is Bonded by Blood. And then in terms of the other albums, I'm not as familiar with the um, the Rob Duke stuff, but I'm just right. thinking of what he did three albums with them. And I want to say... The one I'm probably most familiar with is the Shovel-Headed Kill Machine one, which is 2005. I think that was his first one. Um, right. I want to go back and listen to more of his stuff because that was the time where I sort of stepped out of Exodus. Um, but definitely Bonded by Blood. That is the the sort of quintessential thrash album. That was their 1985 debut. That was the one that I think, if you listen to that in context with the Big Four's first albums, you will see that it stands right there with all of them. Um so yeah, so that and that's all the early and then you have the Sousa stuff, so then uh it's the two thousand four two thousand five shovel headed kill machine where Rob Duke stuff starts. So I'm interested to see what you think about that. I definitely have been dipping back into their early catalog. I haven't checked out the Duke stuff so much, but um when I saw them in concert, which was in two thousand fourteen, I actually saw them with Slayer and Suicidal Tendencies and, and I talked about this on the show at the time. But I, it was Gary Holt doing double duty. So he came out with Exodus. They played, and they only played a half hour. I think they played six songs. Um, and then he came back out with Slayer. But when they played that day, they played two off of this album. They played Black 13, which they had the walk-on music was that opening intro uh-huh. that we talked about. Then they played Blood In, Blood Out, which, of course, is the fantastic song to play live. And people just lost their mind about. Uh, they played a song off of Tempo of the Dam called Blacklist, which is a killer song. Um, then they played the Toxic Waltz, which is a song that anybody who's heard Exodus will probably know when they hear it, off of Fabulous Disaster. Uh, they played Bonded by Blood off of that album, and they played Strike of the Beast from Bonded by Blood as well. So a good mix of the Sousa uh, eras while also mixing in the Paul Bailoff stuff as well. So uh, they were awesome, and I wished that they had played for longer. That was my first time seeing them, and that's the only time I've seen them, but oh, wow. I would see them again in a second you know again my takeaway uh, around exodus is that criminally underappreciated one of the founding fathers of thrash metal and just never became as big as any of these other bands and that's really a shame like even even testament who sort of came out of exodus um in terms of record sales has probably sold 10 million more records than exodus has over their oh, really? course of their career so they oh, just wow. never even had the commercial success either and you wonder if it was a timing thing where had they gotten out a little bit earlier with that first album they would have really been 
much more in the conversation. Could we be talking about a, a big five rather than a big four? Yeah. Well, and a lot of times people will, and there's so many conversations. We could do a whole episode on the big four, big five, big. A lot of times people will say big, right. <laughs> big, big seven, well, and they throw. And we in, spent a lot of time when we were talking about the big four albums. We did cover this. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times people will say the big seven is uh, those four bands plus Exodus, Overkill, and Testament. Um, yeah. But then you have people that say Death Angel, and you know, so there there are a whole host of these other bands, but definitely around that time, um, and we will talk about Overkill at some point, and when you know we'll talk about tech, uh, Testament. So, yeah, um, so yeah, but I'm I'm super psyched that hopefully people dug this album, and if you haven't heard Exodus, you go back and check out some of their other stuff. Um, but this is a this is a thrash album for thrash it out fans. So if you were wanting to hear one that is really just a pummeling album, this was that album. Absolutely. And hold, regarding Big Five, Big Six, Big Seven, hold that thought. Uh, so let me just finish by saying thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, remember, if you enjoy the show, please spread the word. Rate us on iTunes uh, if you can, because that does help. Uh, it helps surface us to new listeners, basically. You know, people who turn up more likely in searches, that sort of thing. Um, and of course, you can support the show directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out for just a dollar or more per episode. Uh, if you want to get in touch, go to thrash it for links to our email um, and Twitter accounts. Uh, and of course, you can always join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. So, Yes, regarding the big seven, big eight, big nine, how many? Uh, homework. Next time, I, I've been, I went back and forth. This is, this is what you always say. I went back and forth. I'm excited <laughs> now. Several different albums uh, and several different artists. Like, you know, there, as with you, there are so many still on my list that we haven't talked about. But it occurred to me that I have, uh, my choices this season have kind of neglected what we think of as traditional thrash um and you know that is where it started really for i mean you know technically started for me with sabbath but you know regarding real extreme stuff it did all start for both of us with thrash metal so with that in mind uh and please don't fall over when you hear how i'm going to structure this next time we are going to do halloween's classic two albums Keeper of the Seven Keys, parts one and two. Nice. Now, that is two albums, but neither of the albums are all that long. So, it's actually, the total listening is only maybe like 15 minutes more than St. Anger. <laughs> oh, I will happily uh, listen to this a thousand times more than St. Anger. So, uh, I have not listened <laughs> to those albums in a very long time, and I'm very excited to go oh, back really? and revisit. Oh, yeah. I have not listened to them. I mean, I dabbled when we started recording the show and we mm -hmm. mentioned Halloween a few times. I listened to some of their new album, which was Halloween. Um, but I haven't gone back and really dove into those albums in a long time. And of course, oh, see, I want the new out stuff I've was what introduced me to Halloween, yeah. you know, back in the day. So, um, right. Yeah, yeah I, I haven't been able to get into their new stuff, I'm afraid. I'm honest with you. But Keeper of the Seven Keys, both parts, I still listen to on a pretty regular basis. And I know a lot of people may be surprised at that because, you know, I am not your sort of traditional Euro power metal guy, but I love those albums. Uh, so, yes, that is what we are going to talk oh, about dude, I'm psyched. next time. Yeah, me too. All right. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Take care.